pitches one along but can't get out with it. Follow up from Markov. Very careful trying to play it a second time. Can't do it. Here's Stan Marie moving in. So, uh, it's been said often that Don and I expertly host this podcast from week to week with skill and precision (laughs) unmatched by (laughs) virtually anyone. Why? What do we get hate mail for now? In the podcast world. Oh, no, I was just going to say that despite our virtuoso performance in hosting Uh on a week-to-week basis, we've decided to add a third host today. Oh, right, right. So... In the interest of having a third host, for once we should mention that we are the normal two hosts, and that means that my name is Steve and your name is Don, because that's one thing that we famously admit week Almost after week, week right. after week. Almost more than us admitting our own names, our co-host is mentioned on the show. Right, it's the Yale quota. Right, somehow. <laughs> since... <laughs> since, uh, since we've returned from my illness virtually every week... Either Yale or our other co-host has been mentioned in some form in almost every podcast. And I would definitely say at least at a three-to-one pace of our actual names. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's probably right. Right. So welcome to my brother Anthony Day, who is joining us today as a host. Hello, Anthony. Guys, it's good to be here. It's an honor to, uh, to be here live and, uh, and wired up with you guys. It's good. So when was the last time you listened to a podcast? Any podcast? From start to finish? Or just any part of it, I guess. You know, oh, start recently. to finish is asking I mean, you, you a lot. You always send me an interview here that I'll listen to. Um, what was the most recent one you, you made me watch? I'll listen to. What was it? It was... Uh, Coda, maybe? Coda. One Coda. Of the boys. Yeah, that was, that was awesome. That was the last one I listened to, yeah. What do you think is the greatest moment in sportscaster's history? I think the me and Kenny interview, to be honest. <laughs> Which of the two? The one from the parking lot. The one from the parking lot, because I don't <laughs> want to reveal on the air where we were, but it was uh, it was funny. That was a funny interview. Yeah. Yeah. All right. They so they had a couple of the funniest lines that we <laughs> didn't actually have on the podcast, like right after we went off the air. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Some of the uh, off-air banter yeah. for our DVDs. We have that stuff saved for our right. bonus features. Of course. We really should, because we've got a lot of really good stuff, not just from them too, but from a lot of people. But we. Uh, I were true to our word, and we delete all the stuff that people tell us to. Right, yeah. Often when we have a guest for the first time, I'll say, you know, we record, you know, to tape. So if you say something you want us to take out later, we will take it out. And it doesn't happen often, but a lot of times people do ask. And almost every time it's like, oh, really, we got to take that out? <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, it is uh, Season 4, Episode 16, May 27, 2014. Just a couple of days after Memorial Day. I don't often complain about things people do on social media, but I, I do want to uh, complain about being lectured on holidays to remember the true meaning of the holiday. Like, I, <laughs> it's so hard for me to resist the urge to tell that person to fuck off. <laughs> Why like, you got you had a specific person? No, it's so oh, okay. many. I was going to say, like, my yeah. Facebook wall blew up with, like... Don't forget the soldiers. That's the reason you're having a barbecue. <laughs> Right. It's like, okay, Mr. Holier, Holier-than-thou patriot, you know, I'm sure you went to the ce- cemetery and put out a wreath today. 
because you're so patriotic. Like, we get it. You know? I, I had a barbecue, and that was about it. That's what everyone does. We went to the parade, and we clapped for the veterans. Yeah, I saw a stat. 65% of Americans have a barbecue on Memorial Day, which is amazing because you, know you figure what? all the bars are open. I thought any people. I actually had this discussion with the wife on the way home from probably a barbecue or something, maybe from the parade. And I said, uh, if I were a soldier, and that's presumptuous of me, I know, but I said, and the memory of me was used, like, my uh, hard work and efforts were used to have, so, like, a family could get together and have a barbecue with, like, their loved ones. I'd be okay with that. Yeah. Yeah, one time, it was actually Veterans Day, not Memorial Day. Okay. I jokingly piggybacking off a bit from the Ali G show okay. posted about how amazing I thought it was that we have a holiday to honor the doctors of animals. <laughs> and I got the angriest message back from someone I went to high school with People got killed, about man. how ignorant that was. And like, <laughs> do I realize how many people it's like, I was like, listen, I was kidding. I, you know, well, because joking. of that, so- that social media, I learned that you shouldn't tell a veteran happy Memorial day. You like, don't do that? I, I guess it, it's not happy. It should be somber or something, I guess. I you just get together and have a barbecue. That's all. That's sure. it. Like you said, we we dressed Molly in a red and white dress. We went to the parade, clapped for the troops, and she got candy and stuff. So. Doing things that are American right. is what you should do to honor Fallen people Americans, on yeah. Memorial Day. Right. Do American things. So anyway, uh, good show today. Uh, Hope yeah, we yeah can. <laughs> we we have uh, something really cool. Um, I don't know if we. I think we did mention it in the book club last week about kind of the honor of one of the greatest sports writers in America thinking of us oh, yeah. uh, when mentioning to another author who's writing a book about um, b- a boxer who, who uh, defected from Cuba and is now boxing in the United States. The book is actually called A Cuban Boxer's Journey from Castro's Trader to American Champion. And the author's name is Bryn Jonathan Butler. And he's going to appear on the show with S.L. Price, who wrote a book called Pitching Around Fidel, A Journey into the Heart of Cuban Sports. And uh, those guys are going to join us today to talk about their books. And also I'll get to, exp- to share an experience that I had before Anthony was – I think you were one, Anthony, at the time when the university games were in Buffalo and I was at a baseball game and saw someone defect. Oh. Wait, did you see this, Don? I you know don't remember this? it. You remember the World University Games were in Buffalo? I believe I recall that. I'm almost positive it was 1992, and I went to a baseball game, and it was Cuba versus Country X. And uh, one of the Cuban players uh, in between innings started running. Like into his position in the outfield, okay, and kept running and went over the fence and up the hill and into a car in the 190 and into <laughs> Canada. <laughs> that's, that's crazy. Yeah, so he defected. So, yeah, we. And I was like, "Hey, where's that guy going? Oh, yeah. that guy got in a car." And then, like, I just remember all the Cuban guys like looking around, Jealous. and they only have eight guys on the field, and like the the manager coming out to talk to the ump and like. Some new guy jogging out. and What happened? I mean, is the guy... He defected. He's gone. Yeah. It's Ordonez. Good for him. It's like a known guy. Ray? Is that his name? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope I'm not saying the wrong Cuban. We mentioned it in the interview later. I think it's Ray Ordonez was the one who did it. 
But yeah, yeah. I recognize the name. Yeah, he just pieced out. So we'll talk about that and their books. Uh, also, Tass Mellis is going to join us. Oh, to wait, Maglio. Is that him? No, it wasn't Maglio or Donias. Oh, okay. It wasn't him. All right. But whatever. Right. Uh, we talk about it more with more wit and precision <laughs> when we get those guys on the show. And uh, I saw Price was all over it. He knew all about it. He's like, you were there that day? And I was like, yeah, I was there that day. So that's kind of cool. And uh, Taz Malice is going to join us to talk about the NBA playoffs, something that Don and I, I think between us, I think we've only missed 34 or 40 seconds of the actual play so that's far in these rounds. Absolutely true. Yep. So we're going to talk to Taz about, uh, Taz about all the things that have happened there. And then Tim Graham is finally going to join us. Uh, he's supposed to be on the last show. Didn't make it, uh, but he's going to make it today. And we're going to talk about the things that are going on with the Bills, like them potentially moving and them mortgaging quite a bit to trade up for a wide receiver and his Twitter, also his fights. fighting with people on Twitter. He's yeah. the master of it. If you don't follow Tim Graham on Twitter, uh, only do it not if you want Bills news, but if you want to watch him fight with people who <laughs> complain to him about his Bills news. Because uh, he has absolutely perfected that so we have those three things we also have a book club update we're going to end with one last thing and i don't know if at this moment we've decided if we're going to do three opinions our beta thing which we don't have a name for although we do have some suggestions that we've gotten from listeners good uh or if we are going to do the greatest of all time but i'm hoping that at some point between now and then we're going to figure it out either way we're going to get the podcast started with Three things. All right. On the count of three. One. Alrighty. I'll kick it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. All right. Instead of doing nine things, which would be an incredibly long. We're just going to each do three things, and as we've been doing for the last month or so, we're going to start with just recapping what's happened since we were last on in the NBA and NHL playoffs, which are now down to four each, and the biggest thing that happened since we were on the air last is that for 12 or 16 hours or so, I was really close to winning $15,000. That's right. Uh, I don't think we were quite to this point on the last podcast, but going into the last game of the second round, there was a very clear path for me to win the NHL bracket challenge at NHL.com. Right, and if you believe in jinxes, uh, almost the second you texted me that you were close, like the odds got markedly worse when Anaheim lost, what was it, game six? Yep. It's a, and Yeah, and that's like, uh, yeah, that. I mean, I guess you're still in it, but that doesn't look good anymore all of a sudden. Yeah, I just needed Anaheim to get through that, and I would have had a perfect ba- bracket through two rounds. But before that, before the Anaheim series was decided, I was in fourth place in the country. Yeah, it's crazy. Who'd you have in the East? Did you have the Rangers? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I had um, my final was uh, the Ducks over the Rangers. It makes me feel really good about my pick, except for that my West pick went out in the first round. But I, I think I said it when we previewed the playoffs that whatever team wins that that matchup right, the Sharks and Kings. is going to win the West. 
But as great as the playoffs in the NBA and the NHL have been, they've sputtered out here a bit in the conference finals. The Rangers appeared... I mean, really, the second that Carey Price was injured, you knew the Rangers were winning that series. Then that was the end of the Canadians. And the goalie that they've replaced Carey Price with has been fine. He's been fine. He hasn't cost them anything. But you just kind of knew that that was it. And the Canadians even got it to a point where maybe if they get an overtime goal instead of St. Louis like we played at the top, they might have a chance. But they're not going to beat Henry Lundqvist and the Rangers three times with two of those games. Well, I guess only one of those games would be an MSG. But regardless, it's done for them. And I'll eat crow if need be next week on the show. But I, I have a strong feeling that the uh, the Rangers are going to be in the cup. I, I don't, I'm not as convinced about the Kings because I'm just not ready to count out a champion. Like right. when you have to get the fourth win against a championship team like the Blackhawks, it's just not a given. The Kings look like the better team in that series. They look like they want that series more. Uh, they look a little bit more physical. Uh, maybe they're a little bit deeper than the Blackhawks. Uh, but I'm not ready to just give it to them. But it sure does look like we're headed towards Kings versus Rangers in the finals, which means Gary Bettman and Dick Ebersol are doing backflips yeah, no down South Broadway in New York City. Because there couldn't so be a one better two market, number right? one and two market, buy coastal, get everyone involved. Uh, great. We've talked about this. We've asked hockey guests, do you think that this has been a good year for hockey? And there would be no better way to end what everyone has said yes to than a Rangers versus Kings final. And what is Chicago? Like the number three market? Chicago is not a bad option at all. Right. So They were down 3-1 last year. They are three. Series, to so Detroit, I wouldn't though. count them out. Right. I wouldn't, yeah, I'm never counting a team that's coming off a cup out until you beat them four times. Uh, and they have the, the players to do it. It's interesting... How, should, should they just hand the cup out when the West is decided? No, Lundquist. just because of Lundqvist. Yeah, yeah. you know. And the Garden. And MSG, yeah. 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 I, I think Lundqvist, he can win a cup for him. Well, it'll be good. I mean, like you said, this this round kind of slowed down a little bit, but uh, the cup should be great. Yeah, and in the NBA, it looks very similar. And we're gonna not going to spend a ton of time on it now because we did 30 minutes with Tass Mellis on it, but... Looks very much like something I think I said weeks ago on the podcast. I didn't care about anything else because the Heat and the Spurs are going to play in the finals. Right. I said that weeks ago. Three, four maybe even. Now, and I wasn't here for the interview, so I don't know that you bring this up or not. But I've heard or I saw a headline that read something like, is the Heat's dominance bad for the NBA? And my question would, about that would be, did people think the same thing about Jordan in the Bulls? Was that bad for, for the, the NBA? Lakers? Like. The NBA has been built around dominance since day one. Yeah, I, I think dynasty is good for every sport. The it's Celtics much- went years and years as the best team, and then it switched to the Lakers, and then the Pistons won a couple in a row, and then the Bulls won, and then when Jordan was out, the Rockets, the Rockets won right. two in a row, and then the Bulls went back, and then the Lakers had another had a three-peat in the Spurs. 2000s, and the Spurs have won some spread out a little bit, but the NBA is built on dynasties, so I, my answer would be a resounding no to that. Right, and I, as a guy that didn't follow basketball, I was always a fan of what Jordan and the Bulls were doing, so I think the only people that don't like dynasties are the people like from Buffalo that don't want to see New England win again. You know what I mean? Like, just because I want my team in there or whatever. So it's the other 28 cities or however many cities that really don't have a shot at it that get pissed about dynasties, but I, I, I think... Every other casual fan is interested in how many that he can win. So I would think by next week we'll be talking finals in both leagues. Oh, yeah. So 
Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess strange things could happen in the NHL, but I would imagine so too. Yeah, and I would assume that it'll be Kings versus Rangers and Spurs versus Heat. Heat, but I'm not quite ready to count out the Blackhawks. I think that there's still a little bit of life there. You don't want to let the Blackhawks get a big one. Like, you don't want to let the Blackhawks win, like, an emotional overtime type of game five. You don't want to let the Blackhawks get a big win. If they're going to win a game, you want it to be, like, kind of a three-to-one ho-hum game, and then the Kings can close them out. You don't want to give them that, any reason to really get pumped again. Right. So I would make the Blackhawks a huge favorite in a game seven if they ever got it there. Yeah, to, to come back that much? Yeah, I would say so, too. But, uh. All right, moving on. Another thing that is maybe a little bit, it's only a couple days old, but it's been talked about in many places and really interested me, and I really wanted to get your idea on it, and that's the idea of Landon Donovan being left off Team USA for the World Cup, which is extremely close all of a sudden. I believe it starts on June 12th, 12th yeah. which is very, very close. I didn't realize it was as close as it is. and uh, He said that, He's handled it very well, said the right things, really handled it like a leader, and obviously things can change between now and June 12th. Someone could be injured, uh, and if it's an injury in the position where he would be... Cons- I, I, I can't imagine anyone's injured and they name someone besides him. But uh, So there's still a way for him on, but one question for you guys is, is there a comparison? Is there another guy? I kind of have one in mind, but can you think of another athlete in another sport being left off of his team's national team that would be as kind of shocking as this i I, I i'll throw one out and that was just like if there was a world baseball classic this year and mlb left jeter off of it Ooh, yeah that's a good comparison because of their age too this would have been donovan's fourth right and there i heard a really impressive list of players put together that donovan has more world cup goals than combined I think he has five goals in the World Cup, which is actually like a lot. And he just set the record for the most regular season goals in MLS, and he holds the playoff record. Yeah, I thought I mean, that was MLS, MLS, MLS. It's not the thing. Premier League right. or the La Liga or anything like that. But I feel like it's like leaving, especially the United States, a country that wants soccer to grow, leaving the most notable U.S. soccer player off the World Cup team. That's like almost like Canada leaving Crosby off. Off the top of your team, head. Or St. Louis leaving the Olympics. Off the top of your heads, how many players on the team can you name? I know Jose Altidore. Altidore, okay. Donovan. Yeah, I don't know. The Don- goalie. Donovan would have been the guy. Who's the goalie? Tim uh, Howard. Tim Howard. Scored. Very few. I- I'm surprised that Donovan is only 32 years old. I, ca- I can't believe they left him off the team. He said not only did he think he was in contention for the team, he thought he was in contention to start. And there's... Uh, a lot of talk that this is a coach versus player issue, and it's a German guy. I heard Freddie. Yeah, I knew he's not an American. Too. A lot that happens a lot in those in, in like the, in the World Cup. Like a coach is not from the same country. So we have a German guy deciding that the greatest American soccer player of all time isn't going <laughs> to be able to play his. I just don't know World how. Cup. Maybe if he doesn't start, how do you not have him on your team? With just for the just the experience of being there. If this was going to be his fourth, like you said, like I don't know how you don't have him there. And he obviously can still play, right? Like, I mean, what are your expectations? If you want, you wanted to do well in America, you got to bring your your number one guy. That would be the argument, I think. If you were going to put someone in place of Jeter, is you could probably find someone better than Jeter right now. But Donovan, 
I mean, I don't follow his career that closely, but he's still playing in the MLS. It's not like he's not playing or scoring. So, I mean, is there... I guess I'd have to know his replacement. And you play 11 guys at a time in soccer, right? It's 11 guys in the goalie. And you only get three subs a game. And they carry, like, 20 guys on the roster, right? A lot, yeah. So what is that last guy going to do for Team USA that is going to be greater than having the presence of Landon Donovan right. just on the team. This here says he has scored more goals than Lionel Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo, and Robin Van Persie combined. Yeah, which are those? And are I the think three you can players. add Wayne Rooney to that list too. They maybe just didn't, but Wayne Rooney I know only has one. So really? I, yeah. So maybe if Wayne Rooney puts that over the top, but I know he only has like one. So it's uh, really a really strange decision, a decision that I'm sure. ESPN is maybe the least happy about. When does it start? June June 12th. 12th. Okay, so it's right around the corner, so it's not like they have time to change their mind or anything like that. I think the only way they can change their mind is injury at this point. Yeah, they they sent the roster in. It needs to be an injury. Right. But I imagine that's the type of thing you just... Oh, oh, man. Broken toe. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right, one last thing. Third thing for today. Uh, We're going to get our TMZ side on. (laughs) So... Interesting week or month for Rory McIlroy and his now former fiance, who you can't help but feel bad for, Caroline Wozniacki, who is a former number one player in the world, although her number one status was often complained about because I think she earned it before she had ever... Won a major. Oh, okay. So Wozniacki and McElroy are this power couple, and they get engaged, and it's it's going to be a beautiful wedding, and there's a little bit of money between them. So (laughs) a little bit, you know, as someone who's planning a wedding in probably the thirty to forty thousand dollar range, and assuming that that's going to be pretty beautiful, I can imagine what a three hundred thousand dollar wedding would probably look like. Sure, which is what I'd assume they might pay for. Uh, so they're getting their plans together as a happy couple, so much to the point that they mail out their invitations to the wedding. So let's say you were invited, Don. You might go to the mailbox, say, oh, look at this. Can't wait. I'll have the chicken. It'll be two. <laughs> get ready to send that thing in. Before you get a chance to, McElroy pulls the shoot and uh, cancels the engagement. It's off. No engagement. We're yeah, done. He he literally says here, what am I looking at? The BBC.com, so a legit source. McElroy said the issuing of the couple's wedding invitations at the weekend made him realize he, quote, wasn't ready for all that marriage entails. <laughs> <laughs> Throwing stamps on envelopes apparently was. Right. Was, or he realized I'm 26 and we're $300 million. It's the most devastating set of invitations since George and Susan's in Seinfeld. Right. But uh, so since then, McElroy has went on to win a PGA Tour event, and Wozniacki, Wozniacki has been eliminated in the first round of the French Open. Yeah, it makes me think. So clearly, one of them has moved on with their life, and the yeah. other one is a little rattled. She may have been blindsided a little bit. Yeah, Rory won maybe the biggest tournament in Europe. That's not a major, the BMW. So that's uh, he's handling it well, and she is but not so good. It, whatever, she's twenty three. She's rich too. They'll she'll bounce. I'm sure she'll and land. On, she'll land on her feet. <laughs> Might cost her a year. It it, it is a couple tournaments. Very Seinfeld like though that yeah. the wedding invitations were just too much. All right, we are going to take a break and come back 
uh, with Tass Mellis. Our next guest is from Toronto, Ontario, and is the co-founder, co-host of the Basketball Jones podcast blog and TV show that appeared on the Score Television Network. This season, the podcast moved to the NBA Network under the name The Starters. He's making his fifth appearance on the Sportscasters today. One more welcome to the very talented Tass Mellis. What's up, Tass? Not much. How's it going? Good. How you doing, buddy? It's been a been a bit. I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Loving the playoffs. Uh, you know, they they sort of peaked in the first round, um, but at the same time, I, I think they've been extremely competitive all the way through, and the storylines have been great. You know, all that talk about uh, no parity in the league, um, you know, throughout the regular season, I think that's kind of gone out the window. It's been pretty entertaining, you know, throughout uh, you know throughout the, what, what we're at, like six weeks now, so it's, uh, it's going pretty well. Yeah, I think it's really interesting how even as as recently as I believe last year at this time, we had the discussion of, you know, did the NBA at the time make the right decision to move the first round from five to seven games? You know, obviously it was never going backwards because that doesn't happen in sports. But, you know, it hasn't been that long since we had that discussion and maybe could make an argument either way. But this has been the been the year where we were, you know, the best year for the first round in the NHL and the NBA. Yeah, that's uh, it's a good point. I mean, we talked about that, um, and, and you know, Adam Silver, the new NBA commissioner, is, is very focused on making this game more popular. He's been quoted as saying he wants to you know, try and rival the NFL, which obviously is a uh, an incredible feat to uh, to even imagine. But uh, there has to be something drastic in the playoffs uh, done with the format to to even come close to the NFL. It's never going to go you know single elimination, um, but. You know, I wouldn't. I wouldn't leave anything off the table with Adam. I think he's, uh, you know, uh, he's he's really forward thinking, really progressive, and and again, wouldn't uh, wouldn't take anything off the table. Would he train change it to go something like two of three, which would make it extremely entertaining in the first or second round? I, I think he'd wait um, and try a bunch of other things before he'd he'd go that route. Um, but yeah, I mean, we saw a ton of road teams uh, win the first first in the first round. Um, and an unprecedented amount of road teams. So the underdogs are doing fine. Uh, it's Again, it's been extremely entertaining. Yeah, before we get, uh, just because you mentioned him, before we get too far ahead of ourselves to the point that I'll never get back to this, I, I'm bored with the, the other things that have happened off of the court, and I'm sure you are as well, during this NBA playoffs. The only thing I want to ask you about the Sterlings and Cubans and the newsmakers that have made news Unfortunately, and as I think maybe even Magic Johnson in the one interview said, we're wasting time talking about this instead of LeBron James' 50 points. I don't want to make that mistake either, but the one thing I did want to ask you was about the new commissioner and how you think overall he's handled everything so quickly into his tenure. It's almost like his version of 9-11, you know, just a few months after entering office. You know, it's like, it, it's a, that might be a really strong and maybe unfair comparison, but I think you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's I. I, I do know what you mean. Yeah. Anytime, uh, um, you know, we compare sports to the real world, it's right. always, yeah. Uh, I didn't mean to always, be insensitive. Little, yeah. No. No. I know. I know what you mean. But I, I. I mean, people who even compared it to you know in in basketball, the malice of the palace. 
um, in 2004. Um, you know, I, I I didn't think it was that extreme. Um, you know, it it became extremely um, uh, you know talked about obviously with with social media. So so it, it's different even than ten years ago um, when the mouse and battles happened. But I think that was more of a black mark on the on the league uh, because it's it's an on court product. And it was an on court event. Um, I, I think this is more sort of the Tim Donaghy situation that we saw. It's a lot more like that with an NBA referee that's sort of, he is an outlier, uh, and, and Sterling is an outlier as well. Um, and it's just different from, from an ownership standpoint. Um, uh, you know, it's not an encore product. It has nothing to do with the game. And although it was, you know, extremely magnified at that point, um, I, I mean, it's obviously a terrible situation. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I don't see it as, as sort of, at any point, will it be a black mark like even the Mouse of the Palace was again? Because, because Sterling is an outlier. The other 29 NBA owners, um, you know, although they may have um, some blemishes on their records, they're not the home Sterling. And uh, I was extremely impressed uh, with what Adam Silver did. Inevitably, the way you know the U.S. works, the law system has is going to take. It's time dealing with it. I was extremely, extremely impressed and surprised even the way Sterling ousted him um, from the get-go, banned him. Uh, and, and, yeah, we know that it's going to sort of loom over the Clippers organization over the summer. Um, but I, I think you know, just the fact that he came out 48 hours after, um, you know, it, it felt like such a multi-layered situation that he wouldn't be able to, to declare and ban Sterling immediately. I think he made everybody feel a lot better. Um, I don't know if he could have handled it any better uh, because inevitably it is going to take a long time. That's just the way uh, it works. The man owns the team um, and, and it, it's his property. Um, so you can't, you know, you can't really litigate stupidity um, and, uh, and, and morality. So that's where we are right now. And, you know, and uh, again, I think he acted upon it as fastly as, as he possibly could. And uh, we're in a great spot. I mean, uh, you know, I don't know if David Stern handled it uh, a similar way, but I don't see how anyone can look at Adam Silver and say he should have handled it differently. I think he's done an incredible job. Yeah, I, I can't can't agree more. You know, one thing that I was thinking about the the first the last time we talked this season, I think we were maybe fifteen or twenty games into the season. I I said, you know, before I got on the phone with you, I, I was looking over. Looking over the uh, the standings and and something jumped out and you're like the Pacers. And I was like, no, actually it was the Spurs, and just how we had at the end of the finals last year, even during the finals, we were the narrative was this is it, this is the Spurs, you know, last run here, and and uh, you know they, they need to cash this one in because they're not going to be back. And and at that point when we had talked last, they were already looking like a team that could make a, a deep run. And here they are, just a couple of games away from the NBA Finals again. What about the Spurs season as a whole and kind of what you think this season means to their legacy based on the period that we tried to put on it at the end of last season? Well, in terms of their legacy, I mean, we're, yeah, we're here right now with them up 2-1 in the Western Conference Finals. Um, to really add to their legacy, uh, they've got to win it all. Um, you know, because it's like, uh, you know, to compare it to another sport, it feels a little bit like, um, an Atlanta Braves scenario where all the division titles, um, are there, but, you know, they're not really looked at as, uh, 
it, it, all, all people care about is championships, and and some people don't consider the Spurs team a dynasty because they didn't win three in a row. Um, you know, it, it's definitely more obviously impressive because they've been around for so long and they just continue to be on top, and that's why I sort of you know compare it with the Braves. Um, but uh, I mean, it's, you really kind of have to step back to really appreciate what they are um, and, and the way they've. The way they they transformed. I mean, uh, you know, watching the the old three, oh, sorry, the '99 champs and, and how they evolved. You know, they they basically relied on Timmy um, big time down low, and how they've evolved now into a um, you know throughout the years, they've just become this beautiful machine. Um, that that Timmy is basically just sort of a working cog, uh, while you know, all four other guys are working cogs as well. It's, it feels a, a lot different than your standard basketball team um, because it's, you know, it, it definitely feels more sort of soccer-like where it's guys are just passing the ball so beautifully. They do not rely on one player. Um, you know, a guy didn't, no starter averaged 30 minutes on that team for the first time since the ABA NBA merger, like it, it just doesn't happen. Um, how, you know, how they're so, uh, they're just so malleable. Like four or five, six, seven, eight, nine guys are important each and every night. You can, you know, we, we spotlight guys every night, uh, talking about them on the starters, but it's impossible to really narrow it down. It's, it's just, it's just so beautiful. Um, and some, and it doesn't really appeal to some people, um, because, you know, people who watch basketball want star power. Um, uh, there's a lot of people that just strictly, um, gravitate towards the guys who pop 30 to 35. And that just doesn't happen on the Spurs because it's a different game. So, um, you know, when we sat here last year, of course, I mean, I definitely thought that, you know, we were, we were reaching that point um, because everyone feels that way about the Spurs annually. Uh, but it's been an incredible little, uh, you know, seven, eight-month experiment for, for Popovich as well. And, again, I, you know, I kind of touched on how their, their offense has changed. Like, when I, you know, when I sort of fell in love with the game, I, I watched Tim Duncan and marveled at him and how he could just, um, you know, explode for 35 to 40 because they'd go to him on the block and he'd find a way to get a little bit of space between, uh, you know, the shot and, and his defender's arm. And he just found all the angles and it was an incredible watch. If you like, you know, one-on-one post moves and, uh, footwork and, and that was fun. But now I, it's, it's amazing that I'm still watching the same team, uh, and how different they are because again, it's, it's just five guys working so beautifully. So, um, you know, for people who don't want to compare them to the Lakers dynasty uh, of winning three in a row, um, I think it's insane. I mean, I, I think they've just been incredible for so long. Uh, it's Again, it's sort of like, you know, they didn't get the titles altogether, so people won't recognize them as such. But, um, again, it, it is one of those sort of, you know, those longevity streaks that, uh, they had to change as time went on, and, and it's been amazing. It's been spectacular that they're still around. So, uh, you know, this this incarnation is very different, but uh, I'll definitely miss it when it's gone next year. I don't know. When, is, when are they going to be done? I have no idea whether or not it'll be the following year, especially the way, um, you know, they just get guys to just replace. Like, no one thought Manu Ginobili would be a, a key cog this postseason the way he struggled last postseason. Uh, he, no one thought that he'd be at this level. So, 
you know, the list goes on and on. Will Timmy be back to where he was? There's you know, whispers about him retiring. Uh, if they win, I guess it's a possibility, but I imagine he'll be back for one more. Um, and, uh, you know, that guy is, you know, the, although Popovich sort of anchors them off the court, it's still Duncan um, making, you know, sort of his, he is the coach on the court and making sure everybody falls in line and, and plays that, that beautiful way where they make sure everybody touches it. Um, uh, you know, at least once a possession. It's it's amazing. So uh, we're probably going to see it for another year because I imagine Tim will be back for another year and, and they'll have, again, they have the best record, which was surprising. And I know we talked about that, but uh, we'll see them up at the top again next year, I'm sure. Yeah, uh, someone made an interesting point. It wasn't mine. I wish it was, but I uh, can't remember exactly where I heard it. But they were talking about Ginobili and kind of how little he's actually started in his career uh, yet how much money he's made and how they've been able to keep him uh, interested in being there. Maybe unlike the way the Thunder were able to keep Harden interested in the idea of playing that same role and kind of how the Thunder have kind of been hurt by that. Do you, do you see that comparison at all? you have any thoughts on, on the point of... Uh, Maybe the part of the brilliance of Popovich and the Spurs is being able to keep Ginobili where he was and interested in being the kind of player that he is. Well, I hear what you're saying. I think it's more of an extension of the whole team because uh, you know Tim Duncan makes far less money and has made far less money than other superstars who have won a lot less. Uh, Tony Parker is in the same boat, um, and uh, you know they were comfortable doing that. Uh, man is a little different because he came over when he was older, um, you know, slightly older. I think he was 25 years old. Um, and, uh, and at this, at that point, maybe, you know, he looked at things differently. You know, he was obviously, you know, playing abroad. Um, so maybe the money was, was fine with him while, you know, guys growing up in the U.S., uh, you heard in Durant, Westbrook, um, they would assume that, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm I'm the superstar on this team. I'm getting max. I'm getting the max. Uh, that's what their agents got them. Um, but again, uh, you know, at the same time, I guess we can sort of look at the Miami situation, although it's a little different. They're they're making more than the big three of the Spurs, uh, but they did take a little bit less as well to to do what they had to do. Uh, uh, you know, I I think the the comparison sort of ends there. Uh, you know, Harden wanted uh, to make some more money um and you know there's rumors that he would have taken what sam Presti was offering him in oklahoma city um but fact is i think he he simply wanted to make a little bit more money money of a you know a superstar and didn't want to sort of play that third fiddle um financially anyway and uh that's where we are i think the spurs situation is just it's just it's a unique situation in the nba uh it, it always has been um the way you know they've kept three stars together for, you know, over a decade, um, making less than, than maximum money. It's, it's, it's unique. It's, uh, the only one like it really for, for this extended period of time. Other teams have, have changed their stars in and out, um, while this team has stayed together. So it's, uh, there's, there's really, really nothing like it. And again, part of it may be two of those guys, Tony Parker and Manny Ginobili, um, weren't regarded as superstar players, um, when they came into the league. So, uh, that has to be a part of it. You know, it's only uh, been a couple of years since I think the Spurs were 10-0 and with a 2 nothing lead against Oklahoma City. And Oklahoma City 
won four games in a row to go to the finals, and I believe that was a Harden Thunder team. But what about the Thunder? Is this team capable ultimately of beating the Spurs? And separately, if they don't, what does that mean for them going forward? Well, if they don't, they just ran into uh, an incredible team. Um, I think the Spurs just seem to be, you know, rolling uh, a little bit better. Uh, obviously, you know, Serge Ibaka coming back in Game Three uh, helps the Thunder a great deal. This is more like um, the team that you know that got them to the second seed. So, uh, I think now we're seeing sort of a fair battle um, as long as Ibaka stays healthy. I mean, going forward. They just have to get better. Uh, yeah, I don't see Durant going anywhere. I, I don't see Russ going anywhere. Um, you know, if they if they find a way to get rid of Kendrick Perkins' contract, um, there's money that's freed up there. Um, can they keep Reggie Jackson? Um, because you know, like we just talked about, he'll be offered, uh, you know, sort of a, not a hard and tight contract, but more money than OKC may be willing to offer him. Um, so. I, I think they just keep retooling and because, listen, this is a team that hasn't lost. I know it's, 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 it feels like the, the Boston Celtics stock river stock, but they haven't lost a series with their starting five quite yet. I mean, they could lose to the Spurs, but last year Russell Westbrook was hurt. Right. Um, the year before, I know they went to the finals. Um, so uh, I think uh, what we're looking at here is uh, just an incredible, incredible Spurs team. Can they win? Yeah, I think I think the Thunder can win. Uh, you know, we're talking before Game Four, which is obviously the the biggest one. Um, you know, in the NBA, only four percent of teams come back from a three-one deficit, so that's what they're looking at. Uh, but the Spurs are just—they're just an, an incredible team. And the Thunder are watching that from the other side. This is Kevin Durant's seventh year, um, so you know it, it happens to all superstars. Eventually, he's going to win one, and uh, you know whether it's not whether it's this year or next, or the following one, um, he, he's going to get his turn. And uh, so I, I, there's no panic button for, for the Thunder, and, and I don't think Kevin Durant feels it. Um, but I think they're watching the team on the other side of the floor and, and thinking to themselves, we've got to be a little bit more like them. Uh, we've got to play better. <laughs> you know, we've got to move the ball a little bit more. Uh, we've got to get guys involved. And, um, you know, the, not, not to say that they don't, they don't pass the ball, but they're, you know, they're obviously – not the Spurs in terms of passing the ball, and they just don't have the the development, the growth of their the the rest of their roster, which the Spurs have. So, whether it's not whether it's retooling a little bit, whether it's development um, within the team, um, that that's what's going to happen. Uh, so, I'm not not worried about the the Thunder whatsoever. We're just watching uh, two great teams, and especially the Spurs, go at it. And uh, you know, it'd be a shame to see the Spurs lose. Um, you know, because they've gone back to this point after Ray Allen broke their hearts while the ropes were out um, in Miami, thinking that everyone thought that that game was over. Uh, the ropes holding back the fans were all ready to celebrate for the Spurs. Um, and it would be heartbreaking if, you know, after all that work, they don't get back to the finals. But uh, at the same time, they know, Greg Popovich knows that he's running into two of the best players in the league, and, and Russ and, and Durant. So game four is what it's what it seems like what it's going to come down to. And then uh, obviously it's not over after game four, but this is a, is a huge one as we talk right now. Fact check me a little bit here, just in case, but I think that the sixth Bulls championship team was the one that won the seven, 70 games and then beat the the Jazz, right? With the Jordan kind of buzzer beater sort of at the end. That was their... No, that wasn't was, their 70-win team. That was, that, was, uh, that was the first 
that was the first of their three of their second three peat at seventy two and ten. That was ninety five, ninety six. Okay. Uh, I knew it was I knew it was the on, third yeah. of one of the I knew it was the third of one of the three peats. Anyway, my point was that so the Heat are on the verge of a three-peat here, potentially. And never mm-hmm. at any point during the season did I think to compare them to the the Bulls team that I was just speaking of or even the other Bulls three-peat team or even one of the, uh, the Lakers three-peat teams. But yet they feel just as likely to win the third championship to me. And almost since the second the playoffs started for some reason – it almost feels like this something switched for them. I mean, they just absolutely crushed and obviously overmatched uh, Charlotte team, and it just got rolling. And I just, I just can't see anyone beating them four out of seven. It, it almost doesn't even matter to me. All this talk that we've had about the Spurs and uh, and the, and the Thunder, and I, I obviously bow to your expertise compared to mine in this. Yet, I just, I don't see it. Can it, can you can you tell me why I might be wrong? Well, the, the Spurs can definitely beat the Miami Heat. Um, I, I'm, you know, the Miami Heat are, are rolling over teams. That stinks, Especially right? in the fourth. Right. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, we're talking about uh, we're talking about different teams. We're talking about um, like different quality uh, level of teams that we're watching the, uh, the Heat beat in the Bobcats, the Nets, uh, and now the Pacers as well. Um, those three teams don't have both good offenses and, and good defenses. They don't. The San Antonio Spurs do, and the Thunder do to a lesser degree at this point. Um, they're they're just far superior teams. So I think the Heat were thanking their lucky stars that the Thunder got one uh, in Game Three because uh, they didn't want to see the Thunder, the Spurs go you know four games or five games and just roll into the NBA Finals. Although they they should both both teams should get rest, but I'm I'm sure they're pretty happy that the the Spurs have had to face a little bit of adversity here in round. Round number three, uh, they had faced adversity in round number one because I think um, the biggest thing to slow the Spurs down is is, is just more wear and tear um, because right the path there. they're playing. What's that? Sorry, the, the path itself has been much more rigorous, even though yeah, yeah, it has, it has, yeah. They they took care of Portland in in, in five, but they had you know had to go through uh, Dallas in seven. And, right. But they listen, listen. The, the Spurs are just they're phenomenal. Um, you know they they. They should have beat the Miami Heat last year, and the Miami Heat are not as good as they were last year. Uh, and and it sure seems like it. I understand, like watching this Eastern Conference, that um, the Heat are unbeatable because they are in the Eastern Conference. Right. I thought the Pacers had it, you know, did have a chance, but they're not playing uh, anywhere close to their capability. So, uh, yeah, the Spurs and Thunder, uh, they definitely both have have a chance. And and I know, you know, basketball world would be picking the Spurs over the Heat, um, you know, pretty. Pretty strongly, I'd say, uh, you know, if the finals were to start right now. Well, I, I'd love to take that bet for some reason. I don't know. I just don't. Give me a call. <laughs> I, I love. I love. I have so much respect for the Spurs. I think you maybe from our discussions, you might have maybe picked up on that. Like, I have so much respect for what they've done and the way they do their business. And I'd much rather see them cash it in. I just feel like the grind of it all has just been so much easier. But I guess that could work against the Heat as well, too. Um, in the end, you know, just not quite battle tested. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. They're going to give up. I mean, they they give up game ones. They they like giving up game ones, uh, like they did against Indiana. Right. Uh, you know, this they they've had a grind for themselves 
you know, this is this will be their fourth straight final. Um, you know, losing losing uh, to the uh, Mavs in, in 2011. The guys played in the Olympics. Um, you know, the basketball season is, is very long, uh, and 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 the guys you know take months off during the off season to to get back. But uh, you know, although it seems pretty arduous for for the Spurs to get to the finals, and obviously they've got the older bodies. It's been tough for the Heat. It's been tough for LeBron having to carry a team that's simply not as good um, as it was last year. Uh, you know, it's, it's they're a year older as well. Um, so, um, you know, not not to just state the obvious, but it's uh, that's what it is. I mean, the, the, all you just have to step back and watch and take a look at who's playing better. And the Heat, although their their fourth quarter offense when they want to turn it on is spectacular, uh, is the best in the playoffs right now. Uh, overall, the Spurs are a better team uh, because they play all four quarters, and the the Heat can toy around with with the Pacers um, and the Nets and the Bobcats and, and play a quarter and a half and, and win uh, four out of five games, um, but not with the Spurs, and, and that's what happened uh, last year. I mean, it's you know it takes us you know two months to get to the finals, um, but these are going to be the two best teams. Uh, and they are going to be put up a great competition for one another. Uh, so it's, you know, toss a coin, flip a coin. Um, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised, um, you know, if either team wins, but it's going to take a better effort. The Heat are going to have to play a little bit better um, to match up with the uh, the Western Conference champion. Sportscasters finishing up with Tass Mellis from the starters. Just a couple real quick things to burn through, and I'll let you go. Just wondering about the starters itself. And, uh, finishing up your first year here how do you think it went like you guys pumped about the way things went on the nba network and like just doing the show a little bit different more a little bit more focused on tv as opposed to audio like how do you feel so far finishing up the first year with the starters as opposed to the basketball zones well that's uh, that's a good question yeah it's uh, i mean it's a little different uh i think the the biggest thing First, yeah, it's not as focused on audio. Um, second, it's just a big change for us. Um, you know, it's that's the way it is. Now I know. Uh, now I know how athletes feel. Um, you know, coming over from from Europe or whatever, getting a getting their first year under their belt. It has nothing. There's no connection to that. I don't know why I brought that <laughs> up. Um, but but uh, no, but it is a change, and and it took us a few months to to get going. Um, you know, to sort of be ourselves. To, you know, we're not TV types, you know, although we, you know, we went to school, uh, you know, basically all of us is for, you know, for broadcast. Um, you know, we, we follow a different sort of formula. We, we, we like being ourselves. Uh, you know, I talked about birds running into my living room windows today on our show, and that's, that's kind of what makes us us. Um, so it's kind of took us a while to, to get to that point. Um, so there was an adjustment period just strictly from, um, just a comfort level, um, but I, I think we are, you know. And, and in your new sort of digs, you kind of have to. You got to prove your worth. You got to prove your. You got to prove you know the game. Um, and this is, you know, the entity that we talk about is the NBA, and they hired us on. Um, so you know, we had a lot of people to uh, to to sort of win over. So you know, that took some time. Um, us getting comfortable took some time, but I think we're we're getting pretty good at. Uh, at our show now, um, but uh, you know we're it's 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 incredible again because you know the candidacy that we talked about um, or started talking about in 2006, uh, you know as a as a passion but also as a hobby uh, with 
you know, the, the foresight that it was going to be a job, um, asked us to work for them. <laughs> and I mean, that's, that's as amazing as it gets. I mean, that, this is, uh, you know, basically, uh, you know, the peak for us in terms of uh, our show and, and obviously, you know, it'll continue to grow and get better, but, uh, so I, this, there were some growing pains is all uh, I'm saying for, for this year, although we've been around for a long time, it was, uh, there were some changes and, uh, there were some changes also for our listeners and our viewers, um, you know, which, you know, I'm sure we pissed off uh, a good number of them because they, you know, had to, uh, like you, like the changes you mentioned, um, it was, it was different for them, but, uh, you know, we continue to get better and, and I think next year, so I see, I do sound like an athlete. We continue to get better. I'm going to give hundred percent next year. Um, but, uh, it'll be, uh, it'll be even, even better next year strictly because, you know, we, we got our feet wet this year. So, uh, again, I think we're, you know, we're, we're doing all right right now. Um, and, uh, it's more, more of ourselves and, but, you know, also combined with some, some pretty good, uh, basketball analysis while having fun. So I, I think it's been, it's been different. You know, uh, one of the best compliments that we've gotten, uh, is that fans of the NHL network, uh, the NHL and, and people who watch the NHL network or, or MLB even are like, wow, the MLB or NHL needs a show like this. Absolutely. Why aren't, why yeah. is there a show like this? And, uh, and, and that's the best compliment that we can get. And, uh, you know, that's why we started doing the show the way we did it because we felt a need, uh, you know, filled a, a different sort of desire and, in the podcast world, um, you know, was that sort of, uh, was that, was that perfect medium for us? Um, but, you know, the NBA had the foresight to, to look at it and say, well, this can work on TV. I mean, and, you know, we were, as you mentioned, we were on the score. We were on a, a, a television station that had the foresight as well in Canada. So, you know, hopefully, um, you know, there, this is a bit of a model for, for other, uh, leagues. Um, to uh, to sort of model a, a show after because it it only makes sense and again we do have the background we're not just some schmoes uh, who who started with uh, you know picked up a a camera but um, again it's uh, it's a lot of fun uh, we've had a lot of resources we've had a lot of help uh, this season and uh, the NBA is a fun league to talk about so um, <laughs> it was uh, it was a pretty good year for us well I remember Charles Barkley talking about uh, Blake Griffin at his first All Star game saying. Look at how good this guy is, and he hasn't even learned how to play basketball yet. So maybe that's you guys. <laughs> Look at how good they are, and they haven't even learned television yet. And uh, I can relate with the birds, except for it was a deer. I was recovering from surgery once, and I was just sitting watching TV, and all of a sudden I heard this big smash, and the whole house shook, and I thought that maybe a war had started. I had no idea what happened. And then my parents came home from work, and I told my dad about it, and he went outside, and he's like, yeah, it's a dumb deer. You can see his tracks. He ran right into the house, so. Yeah, animals somehow they don't see houses. I don't know how they miss it. But. Yeah, it's happening a lot in in Atlanta. I didn't know I was coming down to the wilderness down here, but uh, yeah, plus all that. Yeah, coke. we got some serious. Right. But yeah, it's a, it's a great city though. So we're uh, yeah, it's been a, it's been a, a pretty fun transition. All right, Tass. Thanks so much for uh, for all the time. Appreciate it. No problem, Steve. Anytime. All right, I want to thank uh, Tass Mellis for being on the podcast today. Great year for him. And uh, his podcast turned television program. He mentioned uh, on the show, Don and Anthony, he mentioned uh, that a lot of people have said that the NHL Network and Major League Baseball Network need something like that, like a podcast 
something daily, a daily podcast type show for their perspective networks. Sign us up. Yeah, I would think that we'd be perfect. It's for the NHL one for sure. You might struggle a little bit on the baseball. Like Major League Baseball Network might be a little disappointed with your commitment to their sport. It might, it but might. it would probably increase if we were hired by that. Sure, right. right. Yeah, I would watch. Some I think you'd stuff. watch a little bit more. Flip it on, yeah. But yeah, is there any like dream? You know, examples of. Like if some sort of uh, entity wanted me to do their Let's, official podcast? No, forget us for a second. Let's say from five to six on the NHL network every day. I mean, they have NHL Live. But that sucks, right? I mean, it's not good. Yeah, that's for sure. That's when it's like done like in a mall, it looks like. Like you see the I cash think it's register in the behind NHL it. store, it's in the NHL right? store in Manhattan. Yeah, it's yeah. bizarre. Like the background is like a girl at the checkout. But yeah, I think I was going to say that Merrick versus Wyshynski would probably be. Great for that on the NHL network. Sure, yeah. Can, you know. But anyway, all right, book club update for today. Uh, a few things to get to uh, before we do a book club interview, actually, right after this. Uh, there's two book club books of the month for June, but I'm going to mention three sort of because of the tie-in between the two. The first one is A Cuban Boxer's Journey, Guillermo Rigando. From Castro's Trader to America's Champion by Bryn Jonathan Butler. It is only an ebook, and you can get that on Amazon. And he's going to join us in a second. He sent me a copy of the book. I've been reading it. It is great. Some really interesting stuff about what it means still today to be under Castro's watch as an athlete and to come to America and to uh, actually earn money. Um, and uh, he's going to join us in a second with S.L. Price, who also wrote a book in 2000 about the similar subject, Pitching Around Fidel, A Journey into the Heart of Cuban Sports, which has just been reissued in paperback. And as Mr. Price says later in the interview, the main reason he was interested in doing this is so it could also be available on e-formats. So that is also available uh, on your Kindle or iTunes or nook or whatever kind of ebook you read and then the third book is the one that we're going to do at the to the interview at the end of the month and i actually just got it today and i have a copy in my hand it's a nice looking big book uh called console wars sega nintendo and the battle that defined a generation something fun to do during the summer uh the forward is written by seth rogan and evan goldberg evan goldberg i believe is the creator of the goldbergs the sitcom. Oh, okay. And we all know who Seth is. Right. Uh, but um, I was saying, now normally Don is the one who reads the book club books of the month and prepares the notes. Cover to cover. Right, and prepares the notes for me to do the interviews. But maybe this might be one that I would read. Yeah, go for it. You know what I mean? As opposed, You know, maybe just because, I don't know. But we did kind of make a joke, and I'll make this joke to Blake when he's on. I won't just do it behind his back. But there's a picture of him. Um on the uh, back flap, and uh, when you see him, there's really no other person who could have written this book than Blake. <laughs> he very much looks like the author of uh, Console Wars, Sega, Nintendo, and the battle that defined a generation. Um, the interesting thing is the controllers are an 8-bit controller and a 16-bit controller. The, like, those weren't... like The Nintendo controller they're showing never competed with the Sega controller. They're well, there was a Sega Master System. I don't remember what controller that used, though. I don't remember if it was the same as a Genesis controller. Because that's definitely a Genesis right, controller. Right, and that's there. definitely a Nintendo, Nintendo controller. Right, right. But 
I know we were Nintendo guys, and then we went to Genesis, and we we're both that way, right? Neither uh, of us had Super Nintendo, did we? I did not. No, yeah. I only played it in emulators later on. Yeah. So, all right, uh, let's take a break and come back with Bryn Jonathan Butler and SL Price. All right, our next guests are bonded by the unique, how would you put it, the unique circumstance of both having written books about athletes who have emerged from Cuba under Fidel Castro. Uh, one guest is familiar to the people of the sportscasters, our listeners, and was actually on very recently. Uh, S.L. Price from Sports Illustrated is back with us. And a uh, new friend, uh, Bryn Jonathan Butler, who actually has a book coming out in the next couple of weeks, A Cuban Boxer's Journey, Guillermo. And we talked about this before, many ways to pronounce it, but Regando is the way we're going to go with, from Caster's Trader to America's Champion. Uh, it's an ebook that's available. We're going to have the link everywhere for you guys as part of our Sportscasters Book Club uh, Book of the Month. But a Warren Sportscasters, welcome to Bryn and... Uh, Mr. Price, how are you guys both doing today? It's great, thank you. Very well. Uh, so yeah, lots of information to kind of get out there on the top, uh, mentioning uh, how you both are kind of bounded by uh, this interesting thing about writing books about people from Cuba. And I, I kind of have a, a Cuba defection story, which you guys may or may not know. But um, I think it was in 1992, the something called the World University Games were in Buffalo. Is this when Ray Ordonez went over the fence? Literally, it happened right in front of me. Yeah. Like, I, yeah. I, I was like a 10-year-old boy watching this happen. So to, just to finish the story for those who might not have heard, so th there's this thing called the World University Games, which was being held in Buffalo. And uh, it was Ray Ordonez, as the player, uh, decided uh, at one point to just sprint out um, into the outfield, jump over the wall, um, get on a car into the thruway, and I guess he was in Canada and had defected within 30 seconds right in front of me. So that was a pretty, pretty, pretty crazy. So that's my connection to the world of Cuba athletics. So now we all have a small piece uh, uh, connection there. So, well, so what was the reaction when that happened? The, uh, because I was I was living in Miami at the time, and and I ended up going back to Cuba and and speaking to Ray's wife and other things. Um, so. But well, I was not in Buffalo. Yeah, I don't think anyone really completely understood what happened. I know I didn't exactly understand what happened or why it was happening. But I mean, were you literally sitting there with your mom and you went, "Mommy, look, a man's going over that fence." Yeah, it was me and my dad actually. Yeah, yeah, dad, my... look, that 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 ball player's climbing over the fence over there. He was a, <laughs> in the car. I mean, I don't even know if you got if you guys have ever even seen like a picture of the stadium, but the yeah. the outfield. There's an on ramp to the 190 is the throughway there like that. It, it's not even 30 feet. Like you could hit a ball if there wasn't a screen, you could easily hit a home run onto this throughway pretty consistently. And it was in between innings. He just as the team ran out, he ran out and just kept running. And the car was just waiting on the side there. Like like you didn't I, I didn't notice the car until he got in it. 
Like I kind of saw out of the corner of my eye that he started climbing the wall, and I was like, "Look, Dad, he's climbing the wall." Not really sure why. And then over the wall, and then up this little hill, and in the car, and the car was away, and that all happened within I don't know fifteen seconds of yeah. you know twenty seconds. I mean, it was a pretty pretty slick little plan. And that's look, amazing. And I'm almost positive they said he went to Canada, which you could be. He could have been right. at the customs booth from that spot in another five minutes. So right. all that probably happened in six or seven minutes. Incredible. Yeah, so a pretty incredible story. So that how did you guys initially get connected? Like, how did your guys' worlds cross? Is it just from both having a book about this subject? Brent? No, uh, probably a lot more a lot more specific to exactly Scott's book, Pitching Around Fidel is what I was reading when I flew over there for the first time. Um, toward the end of 2000, and um, it was basically my Rosetta Stone to to understanding the intersection between sports and politics, and I immediately was trained by probably the protagonist of of his book, Hector Benet, a two-time Olympic champion, who in Scott's book had, you know, confessed that he wanted to leave, which was which was an amazing scoop at that time. No, no Cuban athlete that I'm aware of had ever gone on record to an American journalist to express those feelings, you know, and, and allow it to, to go public. So that's who I sought out, and it took really just a couple of days to find him and secure him as a trainer. I was an amateur boxer at that time. So <laughs> it was kind of an odd thing that I had all this backstory on somebody who knew absolutely nothing about me and very sheepishly trying to approach the backstory as, while and, I was there. And Stephen, you should know, I mean, my book, Pitching Around Fidel, I mean, and, uh, you know, here's the shameless plug, which has just been reissued by right. the University of Florida Press and has a new epilogue and everything else, um, was written 15 years ago um, and published in 2000. And it was about, I was living in Miami as a Miami Herald journalist and, and essentially sort of felt a strange attraction repulsion to Cuban sports that I hadn't felt about almost any other, any other sport, that's for sure, certainly in any other country. Um, and uh, living in Miami, you're at the epicenter of, of, of obviously anti-Castro uh, activism. And uh, my book came, happened to come out at the same time as the Elian Gonzalez brouhaha. And so... Um, you know, I, I, it's, it's, a, I, I, sports was my cheat in a way. It was simply, I wanted to show what it was like to live in Cuba and show that it wasn't just a black and white world where there are pro-Castro and anti-Castro people and the people who leave are heroes and the people who stay are, 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 are craven cowards and, and vice versa. I mean, in Havana, anyone who leaves is a traitor and, and in, in Miami, anyone who leaves is a hero and, and vice versa. And, um, you know, I just was very suspect of that narrative and wanted to sort of understand the people who stayed as well as the people who defected and what life was like in Cuba at that time. And Bryn, after reading the book, um, you know, obviously I'll, I'll, I'll slap this right back to him, but uh, began investigating the life and, and world of, of Rigondo and and put together this incredible film about it. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in, in many ways, it is sort of a tag team in the sense that I, 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 I sort of was done with Cuba in, in 2000. I, I haven't been back. I was, after uh, interviewing Vinent, um, 
my photographer and I were told never to come back. And, and when he did go back, he was sort of interrogated at the airport a few months later and turned around after 24 hours and sent home. So, so we were declared persona non grata. And, and, and in many ways, Bryn, Bryn went down and sort of picked up the baton from there and through the life of Rigondo gave you a great sense, of, a, 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 a stirring and deep sense of, of what life is like in Cuba now and what it's like for the athletes. And he did it through the life of boxer, through the life of this great boxer, incredible boxer, uh, perhaps the best pound-for-pound fighter in the world right now. Um, and uh, I, I was a little more wide-ranging, a little more horizontal. I did it with track stars and baseball players and, and, uh, and boxers as well. So, Bryn, I wanted to ask you, because uh, Mr. Price did mention he wrote his book in 2000, and it's now being reissued in 2014 as your book is coming out. Uh, how do you think things have changed in that period for athletes? Well, I think a lot has changed. Um, I mean, as Scott says, I mean, he looked at all, all these different athletes. Um, I was, just just by virtue of the fact that, that I was there as an amateur boxer, you know, looking to gain their knowledge from the best boxing program on earth. Um, I was fascinated by the continuum of the top boxers confronted with this incredible choice from where Scott interviewed Teofilo Stevenson in the 1970s, turning down uh, perhaps $5 million to fight Ali, to uh, just before I got there, Felix Sabone was offered in the neighborhood of $25 million to come over and fight Mike Tyson. Hector um, Vanette was probably the best boxer in, in his era, uh, pound for pound. And, and then by 2007, I met uh, Rigondo, you know, who inherited the captaincy from Sabone, who'd inherited it from Stevenson. So I was really looking at how that choice had changed and evolved from the 1970s or even going back to when the revolution began for athletes. The first boxer who defected was actually in 1967 in in Canada. Um, So I think the choice has changed enormously, and I think the choice for all athletes is really a referendum for every Cuban to make that choice, just with a lot less money on the table. Um, and with Rigondo's choice, the one, the one that he confronted in 2007, um, more than anything, what fascinated me about his story was that he had the sympathy of the Cuban people, um, not the official state sympathy, obviously, because his defection went so high in the political power structure that Fidel Castro personally spoke out and called him a traitor and a Judas and his usual party line with, with anybody who wanted to defect, but the vast majority of people who would whisper about their true feelings were, were tremendously sympathetic for him, and, and I think there's even more sympathy for all the athletes who are now leaving more than at any other time since the revolution. The other thing is that, is that, um, is that you know, I, I wanted to hold up a mirror to U.S. sports through the Cuban system, I mean, there's so many Americans when they go down to Cuba. Are so and and myself, Bryn, everybody, especially writers, are taken with it. With with Cuba, the fact that there are no skyboxes, that there, you know, the fans all sit together, that the price to get in is minimal to nothing, that there is no free agency, that teams never move, that um, neighbor, you know, athletes live in the same neighborhoods as everybody else, and everybody knows everybody. And and it's 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 incredibly tumultuous on a on an American to go down there and compare the sports system in the U.S. and and the sports system um, in Cuba 
flaws at all on both sides. It's just fascinating. Cuba's always been a mirror for us in many ways. We, we, we work out a lot of national anxieties in Cuba. And Bryn's great brilliance, the great thing about Rigondo is he was obviously a great Cuban star, the greatest pound-for-pound boxer in Cuba, and he boxed in a very specific style that is very Cuban, but is incredibly unpopular with American audiences and, more importantly, American promoters. So the reaction or the feeling he comes to the U.S. and reaps a bonanza financially to a certain extent, uh, certainly far more money than he was going to earn in Cuba, but can almost barely get a fight, even though everyone acknowledges he's, he's great. And I mean that in the purest sense of the word, that he is a great tactically arresting boxer and yet his style is not palatable to the american audiences supposedly as it is to cuban audiences. i mean cuban audiences loved him uh and 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 other boxers who box like him down there and so our reaction to these defectors i mean obviously yasiel puig is the big story right now right. and and el duque was the same thing you know he and el tiante i mean a lot of cubans come over and people don't know much about them and the language barriers there and they and they're living suspicion. They're, they're living in a cloud of suspicion and wariness because they're they're trying to work their way through the culture that is so alien. Um, but the fact is, is that there are you know there are certain Cubans who are just so physically dynamic and so unusual. And I say Louis Tiant and uh, El Duque, the pitcher for the Yankees, or Orlando Hernandez, and and now Puig. You just can't take your eyes off them. That um, there 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 becomes a sort of fascination with them and and how we. You know, there's almost a referendum on how we feel about sports refracted through the bodies and 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 feats of these athletes. Brent, I wanted to ask. Well, you, I, oh, go ahead. You want to follow? I, up? I, go was, ahead. I yeah. was just going to say, I think the other element in terms of where the two cultures converge that really fascinated me also is that these athletes have to be smuggled over, and so essentially they're forced to make a decision between living in relative poverty in Cuba or chasing the American dream from a smuggler's boat, which is what I think really fascinated people about Puig's story, um, is the guys held hostage in Mexico, and Mexico's become a kind of way center for these Cuban athletes and Cubans in general. There are 10,000 Cubans who are smuggled to Mexico each year at a minimum of $10,000 a head, which makes it a $100 million industry um, for all concerned. And then they come over to the United States where... You know, by and large, they're beholden to the people who finance them to get out. Um, so it, it's quite an irony that you have slaves being transported across the same waters to Cuba as early as 1520. And today, human beings are bought and sold off the island. Um, you know, today and tomorrow, this is it's, it's a thriving enterprise. It's never been bigger and it's never been more lucrative than to bring these athletes over to the U.S., and, and by the way, this is exactly why writers are fascinated by this subject, because you're dealing with life and death and family and home and, and, and leaving home for money and, and losing part of yourself and doing so. And issues of, you don't deal with any of this when you're dealing with, uh, you know, uh, the pitching rotation of the Cardinals. <laughs> Cuba just is a, is a gold mine of incredible stories and themes that make it irresistible to writers. You know, I I, I think because uh, we've seen it firsthand here in Buffalo with Alexander Mogilny in the early um, or the late '80s, early '90s, uh, when Russian hockey players started coming over, and even before the politics uh, really changed. You know, guys like Pavel Bure, who are now in the Hockey Hall of Fame, 
would end up being drafted in the ninth, tenth round of the draft because they weren't sure if they would ever be able to to make it to the United States to play hockey. But before the politics even changed there, uh, finally Russia just said, let's just make an agreement here. Let's figure out a way where we can we can profit off this somehow and and a deal was worked out is is that anything that would ever be possible with cuban athletes no not not under the current process unless unless well go ahead brent sorry no 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 please continue no i i just think i just think until there's a change of 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 government in in havana will never happen especially it's just it's just not going to happen i just i just i just can't see it um it's uh it's too fraught. There's too many. I mean, the embargo is number one. First thing they'll say is, well, you got to cancel the embargo. And then there's the 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 obviously the anti-Castro lobby in Miami is still strong, although aging. Um, they'll never put up with it, and that's where political that's where every presidential election is won or lost in Florida, in this tiny part of Florida, and uh, and so as a result, that is why the embargo continues because basically. Um, Florida is a very important state politically, and no one wants to alienate that incredible voting block down there. One other question along those lines, and maybe, Brent, if you wanted to add to the last one, there's almost the same question in a way. Uh, when the Russian hockey players did make it to the United States, there was constant rumors and talks about them being harassed by people in Russia, the Russian mafia. I know Alexander Mogilny was afraid to... Um, to fly for a long time because they threatened to shoot the planes down. And actually the FBI, I remember, took down some people at a restaurant called Chef's in Buffalo, uh, which is like about uh, three miles from where I'm sitting right now. Is Do Cuban athletes face that same thing when they de- de- defect uh, criminals from the home uh, trying to take advantage of their wealth or popularity that they may or may not gain in the United States? Oh, absolutely. There's, there's enormous fear. I mean, if you look at the, the human trafficking that's going on, essentially in Mexico, you have the major drugs that's being sent to the U.S. The same people just diversified their portfolios to include human beings. And all of these people have contacts back in Cuba where the athlete families are. So, yeah, they're threatened from the beginning. They they literally are you know risking their life to step on on those boats where the average boat has thirty people. Those boats can capsize. They do capsize. Um, the estimates are about thirty to forty percent of the people who tried to leave Cuba by one means or another have, have died trying to cross the waters. So it's incredibly dangerous. And then once they get to Mexico, they're held hostage at gunpoint or like Puig at Machete Point, and there's a ransom that has to be paid. It's not a, a finder's fee. It's a ransom, and, you know, COD doesn't stand for cash on delivery with these people. It's cash or death. So in Rigondo's case, uh, I think the real irony with his fighting style, which, as Scott points out, is roundly criticized as he just doesn't risk anything. This is a guy who risked more than any athlete I can think of just to get started at 28, 29 years old as a professional. And to this day, he, he described the most traumatic event of his life was just trying to make that crossing. And still, he's petrified to talk about his past, just as Puig is. Puig won't say a word about what, what was involved in, in getting out. And I don't think that's paranoia. There, there's a real danger associated with it on both sides of the 90 miles. And, and you know, i got to tell you, this, this, is, this sort of goes to the heart of the West. When, when, when Russian athletes came over after the fall, and also Eastern Europeans came over, um, 
And the same with Cuban athletes. There's always a vague, a vague unstated dissatisfaction. There, there are exceptions. Martina Navratilova was out for greatness. But there's always a feeling of, ah, uh, you know, the, these Russian players are soft or they don't care about what we care about. And my thought on that has always been that for Americans, we've grown up in a, in a culture and, and with the abundance that we have here comparatively um, where athletes can grow up thinking about greatness. You know, I, I, I can, I can, I want to be in the Hall of Fame one day. I want to be the greatest hitter of all time, like Ted Williams would walk around saying. Um, there, that, that, that's not the thing. They're not going for 12 grand slams, you know, getting the all time record like Pete Sampras. Marat Safin, for example, was a tennis player who, who, uh, had an incredible amount of talent and never lived up to it. But the fact is, is that for these athletes who come out of political and economic privation and make it here, that's the W. That's the Hall of Fame. And that's, you know, they, they, they don't have the luxury of, oh, I want to be an all-time great, or I want to win X amount of Grand Slams or X amount of championships, and I want to be as, I want to win, you know, more than Michael Jordan won, you know, whatever. It's, the W is getting here. It's, it's getting here and signing that contract. Those millions are the W, and it's very difficult for us to understand that because we, that capitalism actually would be the W, even though we are the hub of that. We like to think of sports in our, in our, in our dreams as a place where money shouldn't matter so much. Um, the Cuban defector and the Eastern Europeans after the fall of the wall and before, um, they make us uncomfortable with that because they, they, they sort of give the lie to the idea of professional sports as just a game, and they make it clear that um, you know, they, they came for the money. Uh, well, and, and, and just, to, just to add one thing to that that I think is fascinating is most of the athletes that I've spoken to don't even consider themselves defectors. They say, you know, I, I would prefer to take the money from the United States and go home. I don't want anything from your society. I don't want to live here. I just want the money that's offered. That's the only reason I came. That's the only reason I sacrificed all this, because I couldn't get it at home. If I won an Olympic gold medal in Cuba, I'd get a, a Chinese bicycle as the reward. I'd shake Fidel's hand. Over here, I could make a million dollars. But if I had my choice, I'd go back home to spend it. I, I don't want anything to do with this culture. So uh, in that sense, it's more, you know, you would never refer to a, a Mexican immigrant in the United States as a defector from Mexico or a Filipino nanny as a defector from the Philippines. But all Cubans are labeled defectors the moment they get to the United States. Brent, a question for you that uh, Mr. Price touched on earlier. What is your status as far as visiting in Cuba? Like, have you been told never to? I, and I'm making an assumption that you've been there, which I'd assume you maybe have had have gone once or twice for this book. But uh, can you still go travel there um, with the same restrictions well, that I would well, have? I, I, I went there extensively for 12 years, actually. I, I spent a lot of time there. Um, and towards the end, I, I think I'm in the same position as as Scott, where I followed up with, with many of the athletes that he interviewed, including Tantula Stevenson, who's, I mean, probably the second most famous face that Cuba has to offer after Fidel. And it turned out it was his last interview before his death. And as the camera started rolling, he asked for money and he was drinking and chain smoking. And um, the moment I even hinted at that story to the Miami Herald, they ran it on the front page and, um, I can't really see being able to go back after that. It certainly wasn't my intention. I interviewed all these people to really look at their reasons about why they stayed as much as why others left. Um, 
but he was just in such bad shape that, and so emblematic of, of Cuba at its, at its height that I think I, I also offered, this, you know, by the same token, many of the things that have, have profoundly negatively impacted Cubans in general through just showing, showing the, the, the current broken state of, of somebody, a champion like Stevenson. The sportscasters are here with Bryn Jonathan Butler and S.L. Price, uh, brothers now in the fact that they've both written books about Cuban athletes. And uh, one thing that I wanted to ask both of you guys, which I think is kind of interesting, is we're always fascinated by stuff like this. Mr. Price, when your book came out in 2000, it was as simple as uh, writing a book, and then they published this hard copy thing that you could hold and would go in a library or in, on a bookshelf or wherever. And now, uh, in this day... Uh, Bryn's book is only going to be uh, published as an ebook, and I noticed that with the reissue of your book on paperback, there's also a Kindle edition. Can both of you guys kind of talk a little bit about writing for a book that's going to be released digitally, and maybe what advantages or disadvantages that might add to the process? Well, for me, I one of the attractions of doing a reissue, one of the main attractions, was that it would be available on ebook. Because basically, my book originally came out prior to the invention, or, or certainly the dissemination of e-books widely, and so um, I really wanted that. That was as important to me as it coming out in paperback, uh, to tell you the truth. Because um, you know, clearly, that's where the future is, and that's where people can get it most easily. And I also, you know, obviously, your book is a hard copy is going to end up in the Library of Congress. You know, there's some, you know, you're, at least two copies are going to survive, you know, or a copy is going to survive somewhere, you know, one, one in your basement and, and one in the Library of Congress. Um, and with an e-book, at least it's, you know, it's like the Internet. You know, everything is permanent. Right. Um, I really wanted the book to be permanent because I, I think it's, you know, at least a valuable document of a time and a place. Um, uh, and so I wanted that to survive because I, I don't know what the future of books are. Everybody's been calling them dead forever, but, um, and they've been saying print is dead forever, but uh, I, I would argue that, the, that it looks more likely, uh, anyway, on paper um, than ever before. So um, that was very important to me. Um, I, you know, but I'm an old-school guy. I, I love the feel of a book. I, I love the feel of a, and the look of a book, and I love seeing what a book looks like and the design of it and everything else. So, so I'm pleased that it came out in paper as well i i i would have been happy if it came out in ebook but but i've got that old that old uh, phantom wound still tingling so i i wanted to see it in paperback as well Grin? yeah well yeah i i love the tactile feel of the book also i don't own a kindle but um one of the things i i really like i mean just researching a book like this where there's, there's so much good stuff that's, that's out there to draw from and, and explore and expand upon. Um, similarly, just, just looking for books that, that interest people. If somebody's interested in sports and politics and um, more historical stuff, sociological or anthropological stuff on Cuban-United States relations, um, that some of those algorithms can lead them to books like Pitching Around Fidel and from there to, to somebody who went back and followed up with the characters that Scott looked at. I, I think that that's really useful, that it's just more accessible to people. They can really find it just a lot more readily than, you know, when, when I used to try and research stuff and you just had to go to the library and get paper cards and stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm only 34, but I, 
I never, I never had computers in the library when I was a kid, so I still remember that. And, and now just the access to information, I think, is a wonderful thing to have at your fingertips. Um, it's and, so much and, faster. Yeah, and the other thing is, is look, it's, it's, it's um, you know, publishing's expensive, uh, and that's the reason some books don't get published, because they're not looked like they're going to be big sellers. I mean, I, my book was turned down by a lot of people before it was finally accepted, and that was accepted by a small press in New Jersey that just happened to get bought by Harper Collins. So my first, you know, the, this book on Cuba, which was supposed to be um, published by Echo Press, a small press, um, Echo Press was bought by Harper Collins and then was brought out by Harper Collins Echo. So that, you know, that was incredibly helpful and a stroke of luck. And I'm not sure that Harper Collins would have bought my book. In fact, they probably turned it down the first time for all I know. And so ebooks, I, I have to think, will lower that bar because, because, it doesn't cost nearly as obviously as much to print and distribute. And, um, and so uh, many books that maybe wouldn't have gotten written or seen the light of day are. And so, you know, look, I'm all for more information. That's just when it gets right down to it. And, and, uh, people are more, I think people are now more inclined to, to hit the keystroke and have uh, something drop into their Kindle than, you know, either get, down to a bookstore or wherever, uh, or, 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 or tap even to have Amazon deliver a book. And part of that's disheartening to me because I love bookstores. Uh, but if that's the way it's got to be, um, that's the way it's got to be. Well, we mentioned the joy of it last time. You can find Mr. Price now on Twitter. He is at by SL Price. His book, Pitching Around Fidel, A Journey into the Heart of Cuban Sports, has been reissued on paperback and, as he mentioned, is now available in digital formats, including a Kindle edition, which you can get for less than $10. Uh, our other new friend, Bryn Jonathan Butler, uh, he just mentioned he followed me on Twitter. I'm going to give him a second to give all of his plugs because there's a lot of stuff that I want everyone to know about. Uh, and I don't want to screw any of it up. But uh, Bryn Jonathan Butler, his book is going to be one of our book club books of the month for June. Uh, why don't you just give everyone everything? The the Twitter, where to buy the ebook, the date it comes out, maybe something about the documentary. Just set everybody up so they can find everything, Bryn. Well, the book, uh, A Cuban Boxer's Journey, is, is available through all retailers, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, Apple iTunes, um, the documentary split decision is entered in the Toronto Film Festival, so hopefully they'll take it. Um, and yeah, Twitter, Twitter, uh, my Twitter handle. I think both Scott and I are equally uncomfortable <laughs> with Twitter. Um, Bernicio, I was an early uh, convert to it, so I chose a really bad handle. But uh, but yeah, I think that's everything. Yeah, Bryn, uh, Mr. Price and I had a somewhat epic conversation uh, about a year and a half ago about Twitter. Uh, it's kind of legendary in the sportscasters world, which was basically me begging him to join it and him saying, you know, no way. And then he claims it's a coincidence, but the day before his next appearance on the show was the day he created his account. He says it's a coincidence. I'm not quite so sure if it's a coincidence. I think... You know, he was like, oh, yeah, that's right. I don't want to get into that again, so I'm just going to create this. This guy leaves me alone. But uh, It's the power of the sportscaster. It is. It is the power yeah, of the sportscaster. It is. I could, not, uh, I could not resist your power, as Charles Grodin said in the movie, <laughs> Heaven Can Wait. I, ca- I cannot resist your will. Oh, this was a lot of fun, and they're great books. Again, Bryn Jonathan Butler's book, uh, as he mentioned, uh, is going to be available, and we'll be talking about it all month. We'll be tweeting about it. And uh, you can find that in, in all places. It comes out next Tuesday. Is that right? 
Yeah, June 3rd. June 3rd, that's right. And we mentioned uh, the reissue uh, pitching around Fidel. Anything else you guys wanted to uh, say before we signed off? Any last thoughts? Anything I missed? Not at all. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, thank you yeah, so much, guys. Exactly. really enjoyed it. Thank you. New Haven, Connecticut is jumping at this moment. The Yale Bulldogs, for the first time, are national champions. Try to be best, cause you're only a man, and a man's got to learn to take it. Try to believe, though the going gets rough, that you got a hand tough to make it. History repeats itself, try and you succeed. Never doubt that you're the one. All right, want to thank uh, Mr. Price, S.L. Price, one of the greatest sports writers of all time, first of all, for considering our podcast as a place uh, for Bryn Jonathan Butler to feature his book and for uh, Bryn and for S.L. to come on the podcast. It really means a lot. Please check uh, both of those books out just because it's really a big moment for us for an author of the stature of S.L. Price to say to another author, you want to know a great spot to feature your book? Sportscasters is that spot, and that's one of the biggest honors that we've yeah, had absolutely. since we've been doing this show. So thank you to both of them for being on. Hopefully you enjoyed that segment. For the last couple of weeks after our second interview and before our third, we've been piloting a three opinions uh, segment that I, I'd say for the most part it's been a train wreck. Uh, <laughs> I think I think for one we've realized that it's very very similar to the greatest of all time. It can be, yeah, yeah. I, I, what I had hoped with that, like the controversial opinions segment, was that people get would get more hate mail. I right, guess. like it would generate more. And we've gotten a few, but instead of like, cr- like I said, like the one was literally the comment was, "Oh yeah, about your second one, no fucking way." Oh, was, right. It was that real was not it. specific. We weren't right. even really sure if it was my second one, your second one. We figured it was probably yours because I can't we, remember what your do. second one was. But the NHL is better than the, the NBA. NBA. Right. That was probably the one. So, and that's fine. That's what we wanted, I think, to garner comments like that, only maybe more pointed at things. Right. But So who knows? But uh, we're going to go back to the greatest of all time today. And since there's three of us, we're each going to do two of them. And as we were sitting around trying to discuss, discuss first of all which of the two we were going to do and uh how we were going to do them we did decide on a theme and since anthony's here today and we mentioned off the top that anthony and his team's championship has kind of been a running joke although i'm not really joking when i mention it on the show that it would be championships so the theme of the greatest of all time today is just simply championships in each Individual person was free to take that any way they wanted, whether it be championship games, championship moments, championship teams, championship individuals. Anyway, we each have two of them. And uh, Anthony, since you're the guest, you can start with your first. All right, so my first championship moment or team, I'm going to go with the team. I'm going to go with the 2001 Colorado Avalanche. Um, That's more notably known for when Raymond Bork got his first um, Stanley Cup. I'm um, just looking at the roster. I mean, you got Peter Forsberg, Joe Sackick, Chris Drury, Milan Hayduk when he was young, Alex Tangay. Those are forwards. And you got Rob Blake, Adam Foote, Ray Bork, and then you got Patrick Wall and that. So I feel like that team, even with the weight of having to win one for for Bork on their shoulders, still got it done. I feel like in my lifetime, 
um, that's the, the best championship team. They uh, had to beat a really good New Jersey team, too, in seven games with Brodeur to win that cup. And the Western Conference at that time was no joke either. Getting through it was not easy. I can't remember if they beat Dallas or if they beat Detroit in the conference finals that year. I want to say it was one of the two of them, but I could be wrong even about that. But Colorado defeated the Canucks, the Kings, and the Blues to advance to the finals. Okay, so yeah, no joke. That's a good one. I like it. Don? I'm going to go with the greatest peewee hockey team of all time, and that is the District 5 hockey team that also uh, later went on to be called the Mighty Ducks. As far as I know, they're the only peewee hockey team ever to go on to play in the NHL. Like, as a team. Like right. Just put the entire team in the NHL. So that's pretty cool. So greatest peewee hockey team of all time has to be the District 5 Mighty Ducks. I think you're robbing them of progression, too. They're probably the only peewee team to go from phone books as, like, shin guards. Right. To, champi- to winning the, arguably the hardest state championship to win in the United States. In to Minnesota. the Goodwill Games. To then, yep, winning at a national stage as right, a team. Over Iceland. Right. And then as JV Hockey players. Powers and they, they were USA, but then they went back to the Ducks mid-game, which is wild. You know, they did wear the They USA did a lot jersey. of things that yeah. were of questionable legality. Uh, <laughs> one of them lassoed an opponent on the, on right, the yeah. ice. Yeah, I'm surprised it didn't draw two. Or constantly not having helmets on right. on the bench. Or the goalie just taking his gear off and taking a, a knuckle puck shot uncontested from center ice it was a lot of a lot of that but they were uh great champions and trailblazers and uh were were very close to winning you fifteen thousand dollars this year so <laughs> yes that's true the district five mighty ducks greatest peewee hockey team of all time you know we talked about being american at the beginning of the show memorial day and there's not much more american than the super bowl okay you know very few things bring <laughs> as many americans together at one time as the Super Bowl. And the Super Bowl is a game played to varying degrees every year. This year's it was horrible, right? Te- may- one of the worst. Ever. One horrible. of the worst. Horrible I mean, day. it was just a wrecking. And I would challenge you to find a defining moment in that game because it was just moment after moment of yeah, the opening snap, maybe good that, things the for the Seahawks and awful things for the Broncos. I couldn't even tell you who the MVP was. It was the Seahawks. Right. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah spot on, spot on. Yeah. Uh, other times, there's moments that really captivate a nation, moments that as a country we'll never forget. And I would like to nominate or declare this as the greatest moment in Super Bowl history. And I'd say it's, it's pretty significant. And since I have the computer today, I'm just going to go ahead and play a clip. Okay. All right. Yeah, so that was it. Greatest Super Bowl moment of all time is Tracy Porter at about the 3.23 mark of the fourth quarter, intercepting Peyton Manning, giving the Saints a 14-point lead and uh, clinching the Super Bowl. I'm shocked. It had to be the underdog going into that category with, with you. Now, Anthony, you weren't there, but Don, you were. Do you care to try as best as you can to recall and describe my reaction to Anthony and the listeners of said moment? Uh. 
Greg must your brother Greg must have been standing because you definitely jumped onto him. Yes, we were standing next to each other before the play. I believe this was it was a third down. So shortly after surgery of yours, yes, only so a few weeks. I think uh, I have it recorded that moment, or my wife did, so we could check that again. But I, I'm pretty sure check there the was tape. there was some inspecting of stitches to make sure nothing everything was in order after that, but. Yeah, that was that was pretty much it. There was standing and jumping, and uh, it was pretty crazy. It was probably the most excited I've ever been for a Super Bowl. I didn't wouldn't otherwise like necessarily care about. So it was pretty. I guess it was cool to be that close to someone that cared about it because like all my, all the Super Bowls I've cared about ended poorly. I think I was thinking about it, and other than a car or a house, there isn't a single thing Tracy Porter could buy in my presence from a store. <laughs> <laughs> like he, if, if we were at the same any store and he wanted to buy something, I would insist on buying it for him. Other right, than right. like a car lot because I just probably couldn't afford it. Right. But I mean, where, what other store and item? Like one time I was buying Miss Caster pajamas for Christmas uh-huh. and so was um, Miroslav Shatan. Oh, like, right. And we were at the same rack and we bought the same pajamas. Okay. So like, let's say it was Tracy Porter on the other side i'd say no no, no I sir this. i insist i right. will buy those pajamas right so i can't think of any uh, item really because you don't go to a store for a house that's probably out so if you saw him like really behind car. you in the line at tim hortons you'd be like i got the next guy behind me if i saw him behind me at best buy and he had a 70 inch <laughs> flat screen i probably still would have to step in so uh yeah is he in the league still he was a raider last year i believe so barely starter i believe yeah, yeah. He had a bad year with the Broncos, and then who didn't in that secondary? Right, year? and then got back with the, the Raiders worst last year. Secondary of all time, terrible. I I don't remember. I mean, we're talking a couple of years ago now that he was a Bronco, so I don't remember exactly how bad that secondary was. But it was the secondary that led up the worst play in secondary history. Against I can't the even remember the guy's name. It's like Sam. Yeah, Ward Porter was out for the like year by that point, but um. And that guy, I guess, like has a nickname for himself that he dared to call himself even after that play. It was, it's embarrassing. Yeah, that was a bad play. I mean, a uh, bad play. Yeah. All right, yeah. we're all over the place now. Yeah. All right. All right. So my second moment or game, my championship moment that I'm going with or game is the Federer, Roddick, epic five setter at Wimbledon 2009, where Federer beat Roddick once again, crushing his hopes, 16 to 14 in the fifth set. Remember this is 2009, right when I graduated uh, high school. I remember I'm watching this game. We watched Paul's it together. House, yep. And the sun was no longer up at Wimbledon. I remember that was the last year before they were going to put the roof on it. And Roddick was crushed. Lost 16-14 in the fifth set. And I remember like just watching it after. I'm like, wow, he's he's there's no way he bounces back from this. And he's gracious in defeat. But I remember two days later he gets interviewed, and he's. Uh, the interviewer asked him, you know, how do you handling, you know, the loss that was devastating, you know, you had Federer at Wimbledon and he's like, you know what? It's okay. I'm still rich and I'm married <laughs> to a sports illustrated model, so I'm doing okay. <laughs> so that I think was the the greatest championship game in my life. You were rooting for Federer for the record. I was. I yes. had a big Federer guy. I was so annoyed like how you couldn't be rooting for the American player. I couldn't understand. <laughs> I just don't I don't see that as being patriotic in that sense. It's not the Olympics or a country versus the Federer is so set. Like he didn't need that in any way. Like Federer or just is just so legacy. Like why set. wouldn't you want him to win? I don't know. I just don't see why country affiliation has to be brought into that. 
when it's when it's that. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. You know, as much as it's kind of like a running gag, like I miss a lot of stuff, like sports. Like you always ask, like what will get me to my TV? I I think I somehow caught that. You know, it, yeah. I have good luck for that type of thing. Like I might not watch all the events, but it seems like when I do, they end up pretty solid. All right, I went with the greatest champion of all time. Just shortening it up. And I'm going to go with Airbud, the golden retriever. He is successful. Yeah. He's a, uh, for my knowledge, the only five-sport champion I can think of, uh, excelling in both in all of basketball, soccer, volleyball, baseball, and football. Uh, that's, that's versatility that Deion Sanders is envious of. Bo, Bo Jackson. Bo Jackson, yeah. right, would want that versatility. So Airbud. I mean, I don't even know if he's still with us anymore. Right. But he's somewhere. He's legendary. Is he a golden retriever? He was. Sure he was is. the golden receiver. Right. And <laughs> that's, that's the name of one of the movies. And that is your uh, your breed of your go to breed of dog, correct? It, well, it's yeah, it's the dog. The first dog I purchased, I suppose, as an adult, is and, a golden re- receiver retriever. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> and let's say 15 years from now, I don't want to shortchange any of your dogs. Let's just say 15 years from now. I need you're another still dog. Do- you're dogless. Do you go golden retriever again? Uh, they're so goddamn big. Too I, big? I might go with like a, like a chick dog or something next. I, I don't know. I love having a big giant dog. I guess it, we'll see where I live. You'll have to, in 15 years, if right. if we're uh, doing the official NHL podcast or right. MLB podcast, maybe I'll have a bigger house with a great big yard and I'll get a bunch of golden retrievers. But they are pretty big and hairy so you said a chick dog so that means i have a chick dog right oh yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) at least he's got a cool name he does have a cool name yeah all right so that's it right up to me last one back Mm -hmm. to you all right so i'm gonna go with uh the greatest all right (laughs) listen this is just such an easy one for me the greatest ncaa division one ice hockey champions of all time (laughs) Are the 2013 Yale Bulldogs. Oh, okay. 15th seed. Wait, Yale won the national championship? They did. And listen to how they did it. Okay. They beat the number one overall seed in the tournament to win the championship. Okay. Just after they had beaten the number one seed in their region that had won the Hockey East regular season and postseason championship. Hockey East generally considered the greatest hockey conference in the nation, generally, just generally speaking, Hockey East. No, so that was a number one seed. Mm-hmm. After qualifying for the Frozen Four by beating the number two overall team in the tournament, the Minnesota Golden Gophers, who had 15 NHL draft picks to their four, and then defeating the only not number one seed in the tournament because it was impossible for them to be two number. You don't have two number one sure. seeds in your bracket. Right. They beat the number two seed. North Dakota team who had two of the final ten players for the Hobie Baker on the team. I I just I don't know. Give me another team. There might be a more talented team than them to have won the NCAA championship. Uh, but I guarantee that nobody has the resume of teams beaten to win the champ. I know it's never happened. I know no team has ever be- beaten three number one seeds in the current format to win it. That's a fact. I don't have a joke to make about that. <laughs> I, I can't Is name it? another college team. I don't know. Uh, the Mighty Ducks didn't play college, so I can't throw them in the mix. But, uh, no, that was pretty sweet. It's a good time. 
I enjoyed it. <laughs> you liked that? It was good. <laughs> yeah, would that be your favorite national t- hockey championship? Yeah, season? that was pretty good. I, that was a good team. All right, we are going to take a break and uh, talk to Tim Graham. Our next guest is from Wyndham, Ohio, named after former WWF wrestler Barry Wyndham, and is a graduate of Baldwin Wallace College in Berea, Ohio. He spent eight years working for the Buffalo News, where he covered hockey and boxing while serving two terms as the president of the Boxing Writers Association of America, before moving on to cover the Miami Dolphins for the Palm Beach Post. In 2008, he left Florida to join ESPN.com, where he blogged about the AFC East. Currently, he is back in Buffalo covering the Bills and other Buffalo sports. He's making his fourth appearance on the Sportscasters today. A warm welcome to the always engaging Tim Graham. What's up, Tim? Thanks for having me on, guys. So, was there any? Been a while. Tr- was there any truth to the Barry Windham thing? I just made that up on the fly. Probably. Yeah, don't. Uh, yeah, no, no, uh, no association as no. far as I know of. Uh, I could be wrong though. That have been maybe so, you know something I don't. That'd have been so cool if that was actually true. But yeah, I just made that up on the fly, but didn't work. <laughs> sometimes you hit, sometimes you miss. But uh, you're an improv uh, genius. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, you're you're right. It has been a while, and, and that means we have a lot to ask you about. But the thing I'm most excited to ask you about and to learn more about is at what point, and maybe you don't remember, and maybe you do remember an exact point. When did you decide to go the route? that you have gone with the snark on Twitter? Because I think it's your direction is brilliant. But was there like a – was there a moment? <laughs> was there a tweet? Was there something that said, you know what, enough of this. I'm going to take the power back, for lack of a better term. No, that's the way I've always been. I've been that way in email exchanges and uh, Gchat or the old AOL chat or whatever. That's the way I talk with my buddies. It's the way I talk with my brother. That's the way we go back and forth. And if somebody says something that we find uh, completely ridiculous, it, it turns into material. It's not uh, something that um, that I really think twice uh, about. It's uh, certain things that are said to me make me laugh. And if I can come back with a with a reply that I think people will enjoy, then uh, then that's what I retweet. A lot of people think that. Um, that I respond out of anger, or I'm fed up, or I'm just uh, uh, livid sitting there, uh, that I just can't, uh, uh, I'm so beside myself at some things that people write to me that I'm lashing out in anger, and I'm sitting there at my computer with a smile on my face, <laughs> uh, knowing that the, that people are going to enjoy it. Now, a lot, some people don't. Some people think I'm, uh, I think mean. because some people don't know where I'm coming from, they think I'm doing it out of anger, and they, they tell me to lighten up, and uh I, uh, I'm just having fun. What about your bosses? Do the, do, do the powers that be at the Buffalo News ever be like, you know, we got some subscribers are saying you're being mean to them on Twitter or, you know, anything like that? They try to get you to put a disclaimer in your profile or any, any kind of things like that? No, nothing. Uh, you know, they've told me to just be careful. They know that it's a fine line between humor and offending somebody. But they know where I'm coming from also. And they also know that a lot of people follow me because of that. Uh, I get a lot of followers who are there for the sarcasm, for the snark, whatever uh, you want to call it. 
um, they're not there for the Bills news or my takes on the NFL. It's uh, if something pops into my head that I think is funny. Uh, that has a tendency to get uh, retweeted more than uh, than a Bills blog link or something like that. So um, I, I had one reader get upset with me. Um, <laughs> in which uh, he was tweeting at me, and I can't even remember what it was, but I, I took the Ray Ratto uh, approach, and I said something along the lines of, uh, go fall down a flight of stairs blindfolded or something like that. And a lot of people thought it was funny, but he wrote a, no- a letter to the uh, editor, the executive <laughs> editor, saying that this is unacceptable, and I, you know, as if I really wanted him to do that. And, uh, and so I was, uh, next time I was in the office, she flagged me in and said, right. uh, look, I, I know that this was funny and it made me laugh too, but, uh, when people start writing me letters, I have to say something. And so <laughs> I, she, <laughs> we, we kind of, you know, I nodded to her and I said, all right, I got it. And she right. said, uh, you know, that, that was just like the wink and the nod, like she understands oh, and, and she's not there anymore. Margaret Sullivan is now with the New York times. Um, well, but, uh, no, that's the only time I've ever had a boss. Uh, tell me uh, that they had a not a problem with what uh, what I was doing, but that they felt compelled to to mention something because uh, a reader had written a letter. Now, does the opposite ever happen? Like, for example, when you start in with that, I can't even think of the guy's name from Miami who's trying to you know make Buffalo out to be this big dump, and you kind of take up for Buffalo and and you know get the city on your back and, and start fighting, and especially having the uh, the uh, credibility of being someone who's left Florida to come back here to do then Do you get the opposite kind of, you know, like, Hey, this, this is, this is our guy for sure. Like, let's get behind this guy. Yeah. I think some people do that. I don't, um, I don't do it for just effect like that. If it, I don't look at, uh, well, that was Omar Kelly that you're referring right, to. And he right. called exactly. Buffalo, the armpit of New York or yeah. the armpit of America or something. And then, uh, said some things on top of that when people questioned his original tweet. Um, you know, no, no, that was that was coming from a genuine place. I didn't view it as, oh, here's a, here's an opportunity for me uh, to um, to patronize the the Western New Yorkers and create some false sense of uh, Tim Graham is our guy because I think a lot of people could do that too as an opportunity. I just looked at it as like, you know, this guy's just being a jerk, and it was bothering me on a personal level that somebody in my profession would act that way. And so that was kind of me just, I, I remember I was, I saw the tweet and um, I just thought, you know, this is just, it's just silly. But I felt compelled for whatever reason to, to say something rather than just let it go. And, um, but no, I, I do love Western New York and I raise my children here and I send my kids to public schools here. And I've moved here twice, once from Las Vegas, once from Fort Lauderdale, by choice, both times. Uh, and I love working for the Buffalo News. Uh, I chose the Buffalo News over ESPN when I had the opportunity. Uh, when I was living in South Florida and started working for ESPN, one of the first things I did was ask my bosses if they cared where I lived. And when they said that they didn't, I immediately moved back to, to the Buffalo area. So it's where I want to be. And I think that... Uh, you know, when there's some people out there that have zero credibility taking shots uh, at the place where I choose to live and that I have an appreciation for and where my children live, um, you know, I, I felt uh, I felt the need to respond. You know, and if that guy really think like another thing that guy is like trying to say the Bills was the least desirable road game for Dolphins fans to go on. Like he has no clue. Like, does he really think it'd be more fun for a Dolphins fan to go see them play 
in Jacksonville than to come to Rich State, like to Ralph Wilson Stadium. It's well, like, an I mean, let's well, let's not go too far the other way. I do. When John Vogel took over for me as the lead beat writer uh, for the Buffalo Sabers at the Buffalo News, he asked me. He said, that "What is the worst?" Uh, team in the league to visit and i said you're living in it and it's not uh, that i was taking a shot it is not a glamorous place to visit buffalo is one of those places where you have to know where to go you have to actually put some thought into it some work into it um it is not um yeah it doesn't match up to some of the other markets that's for sure but that doesn't make it an armpit so that's yeah, the thing and, that in jacksonville Come yeah, on, you, know, you want to go to a football game in, yeah, in that stadium in jacksonville to see the jaguars you know, well, Jacksonville has beaches. Uh, Jacksonville has a very nice downtown area. I think so does Miami, Jacksonville's though. a place that is host to the Super Bowl. So Yeah, but so does Miami. Um, they get all that at home. Sure, you can drive to Jacksonville if you're from Miami. I think that it would be tough. If you were to rake the most desirable cities to visit uh, for a road game, Buffalo would still be at or near the bottom. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I'm I, not going to pretend that that's not the case, but that doesn't make it an armpit. Right. Or does it make it worthy of being crapped on uh, just because, but it's still an NFL market. It's one of 30 NFL markets. It's one of, or one of 32 NFL markets, one of only 30 NHL markets. And these leagues don't just go given any, uh, any uh, market to a team. They don't just say, hey, let's just throw anybody who wants to sign up for a city. We're going to give it to them. There are a lot of great things to do in Buffalo. But, I mean, if you were to rank them one through 32, I mean, you you mentioned Jacksonville, but I can give you some reasons why, and I just did, reasons why I wouldn't uh, be uh, behind uh, the Bills, but it'd be tough. What, Cincinnati? Maybe? I don't know. It's, yeah, but, I you mean, know, that doesn't New mean Orleans, I don't love New Orleans Buffalo. Is, or, or I'm that's, a, uh, but, you know, there's a, there's a big difference between ranking 28, 29, or 30 in the NFL. Oakland, all right, let's say Oakland, but at least you're near San Francisco. But, you know. <laughs> Yeah. I'm not. I'm not so much of a homer that I don't see my my town's uh, shortcomings. It depends, I guess, exactly what you're looking for. I guess in the trip, there's so many, so many factors. I guess. I mean, I'm a huge Saints. Sure. I'm a lifelong Saints fan, and I don't go to as many Saints games as I as people might think in New Orleans because I'm not a big fan of New Orleans because I'm not a partier, and there's not a whole lot to do there otherwise, and it's really dirty. And outside of dinner and during the Saints game, it's sort of boring. So, I don't know. So, I guess it depends what you're in. Now, people who love to party and don't mind being crammed onto Bourbon Street to the, you know, and the whole place smells like garbage. I mean, that might be great for them. You know, I mean, I, and I love, love the Saints since I was seven years old. So, but I don't go there often. Okay. So, you mentioned some great cases of New Orleans, maybe one of the, maybe the best NFL city. To visit, I think, right, and known for its nightlife, for its food, uh, for all the things you said that you're not into. Well, I said I love dinner and I love the game. Like I love eating dinner okay, and you, I love going to the game. Otherwise, I, I'm bored. So, if you take those those things off the table, then why? What's there to do in Buffalo? Yeah, probably not much. <laughs> probably dinner, <laughs> right. in the, dinner in the game, and then you'd probably be bored. Yeah, if you're not going right. to go to the museum right. or see the culture down in New Orleans, then you're not going to turn around and say, hey, but Buffalo has Albright Knox, and it has, right. uh, you know, Chippewa, and it has, you know, so... Yep, good yeah, food in the game. Um, yep, good food in the stadium experience. And that's what I mean. It depends what, you're, <laughs> depends what you're looking for. And Jacksonville, you're certainly not going to have much fun at the game. I mean, from a stadium experience, there's tarps there. 
Well, that's true. Uh, it did that, have. Uh, I, I thought that it had a pretty decent tailgating experience when I was there just this past season. But I did spend uh, the day before the game. I had a nice time uh, at the beach. I uh, had a nice day. Uh, I grabbed a Starbucks. It was a little cool, but I grabbed a Starbucks and took a long walk up and down the beach there and um, went for some drives. And, yeah, there's not a ton to do there. I don't think that Jacksonville is going to get another Super Bowl soon. But uh, I think that uh, I think that if you were to stack if you were to compare uh, or offer a hundred people, a hundred random people around the country, a, a, tri- a free trip to Buffalo or a free trip to Jacksonville, I'm, I'm guessing they pick Jacksonville. Right. All right. So we gave all the reasons that uh, our cities might not be at the top of the list for all these destinations. <laughs> and it sounds like from every here, let me finish this up by, this is a saying that I say a long time. You know, a lot of people have used the phrase, you know, you go to Las Vegas or you go to, um, Anaheim or someplace Disney or Orlando. It's a great place to visit, but I wouldn't want to live there. Buffalo, for me, is I've always viewed it as the opposite. It's a great place to live, yeah. but I wouldn't want to visit there. Well, it's, I like it's, that. it sounds like from everything we hear that is the team is going to be here in Buffalo for the foreseeable future. Um, so I guess I would ask the reverse of that, like a question that Buffalo fans might not want to think of is, the, the Bills need the NFL. Why does the NFL need the Bills? Why does the NFL need a town a small town like Buffalo? Because it's here already, and uh, that's probably not the best answer that people would want to hear, but I think that that's the reality of it. It's a fact that it's that it's here. And it's, uh, you know, the, the great law of science, that an object in motion has a tendency to stay in motion, and an object at rest has a tendency <laughs> to stay at rest. The status quo generally wins out in terms of when you talk about analytics uh, or any type of... Uh, statistical analysis status quo is a very powerful thing and the buffalo bills are already here and they already have a fan base that uh that competes well economically when you uh, you're talking about the nfl uh with its revenue sharing and its broadcast deals and its salary cap uh now if we're talking about an nba franchise and this is something i'm going to write about a little later in the week if you're talking about an nba franchise you could kiss it goodbye because there's all sorts of places that you can put an NBA franchise and your location determines in many respects how successful you are because in a league where two or three guys can change your fortunes, you need to be able to draw free agents and compete. And there's no way that a LeBron James is ever going to go play for the Milwaukee Bucks. But a team like the Buffalo Bills, where you need more than two or three guys, it's much more of a team game. You can get a Mario Williams. Um, because of the money that you have to spend on the broadcast deal. And, you know, if you choose and you have a front office that wants to do it, you can go and get a, a big, uh, big name, top tier player because they don't care as much where they go and play. The money spends the same and, uh, there's enough to go around to, to build a team around you. Uh, but in the NFL, all those things are, all those things are there. And it's just a matter of, as far as I'm concerned, or, um, or at least I shouldn't say as far as I'm concerned, because that gives some sort of suggestion like I have a say in the matter. But based on everything I've learned and everything I've been told to this point, it's going to come down to whether or not they can build a new stadium. And if a definitive stadium plan is in place by the time the bills get to the end of their lease or by the time that it can be broken in 2020, then the team stays. And if not, then the team probably goes to Toronto. All right, so say you are, you do have a say in all this. What's what's your number one must have for a stadium? Is it a dome? Is it uh, to 
is it location? What's the number? What's most important to you as far as the stadium? Uh, location for me, and I think that if it all works out and they can find a suitable location downtown, that's the best place to put it because I think that that does so many things, not only for the long-term viability of the team uh, to stay in Western New York, but also everything around it. Uh, one of the great mistakes that I think was made in Western New York was putting the stadium in Orchard Park, and a lot of the executives um, – who've come along, uh, you know, Joel Giambra and Mark Polencars and Chris Collins, and everybody's looked at it and said, boy, what a missed opportunity that was to not have a stadium downtown. And all of the things that have crumbled throughout the city, uh, things like the Main Place Mall or the the rail that didn't work up and down Main Street, or, you know, the, we're starting to see things come back now, of course, with Harbor Center and right. the Cobblestone District being built back up and um, people starting to move downtown by choice, not because, uh, you know, because of the lofts or the new apartments that are, that are being built, condos, things like that. That was a big problem with Buffalo for a long time, that nobody just, nobody lived there, at least downtown anyway. Uh, now people are starting to live downtown or want to. And, um, but I think a stadium down there and the activity that it would create, the events uh, that could be put on there, not just the bills, but, you know, maybe a U2 can come and play. Uh, there, the big stadium concerts that you maybe you're able to draw different events like that uh, to come and play uh, at this at a new bill stadium. I, I just think that it would be the best thing for the region uh, if the team was uh, were to be able to play downtown. Yeah, and especially with the way things are uh, are moving down there, like you said, with with Harbor Center and. Uh... And and you mentioned there's a lot of land in the on in the outer harbor. Is that the area where they would the outer harbor area? Is that where there would be the most space? Is there a spot in mind like where they could actually fit a stadium and parking and have the games? Oh sure, there are, there are a lot of spots. In fact, it was the front page story on the Buffalo News today where it took to, took a, a look at uh, ten different sites uh, throughout uh, the region, and that included on the other side of the border in Toronto and as far out as Batavia or where have you. But uh, the Grand, the um, the Central Terminal uh, location, I think, is intriguing. It has some historic value. There's a lot of property out there. Uh, there's talk of maybe putting, um, you know, uh, turning the tower into something like a hotel and building the stadium around that, which would be kind of cool. And the preservationists, the historic people in town, would think that was probably pretty cool too. Um, you know, maybe out in West Seneca somewhere, there's a chance. Um, you know, there's all sorts of places you could put it, but I just think that you'd be repeating the same mistake of putting it out in Orchard Park if uh, if you took it suburban like that. That's where I think uh, downtown. You mentioned the Outer Harbor. Um, you know, the uh, somewhere you know in the steel mill region, the old you know those old burned out steel mills that uh, that aren't in use anymore. Now, of course, you have all sorts of environmental issues with sites like that, but. If they can find a good place to bring people downtown and to make uh, Buffalo stronger at its core, then I think that's the best thing for Western New York. They they always say that um, you know a strong downtown means a strong city, and I think in Buffalo's case, uh, a strong downtown means a strong Erie County. Right now, I think I I think I know which way you're leaning. But if I were to give you ten thousand dollars and told you the only thing you could do with it is bet on whether or not the Bills will be here and 2023 yes or no which side would you put the money on 
what are my repercussions other than losing your ten thousand dollars? <laughs> Nothing. You just would win. Okay, well, you just yeah, win okay, the money, sure. or you'd lose it. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll, I'll I'd say that they stay. Okay. And I'm leaning that way. I do think that there are all kinds of things that could fall apart. Um, you know, let's face it. Uh, there could be a natural disaster that happens in the state of New York that uh, that takes up an awful lot of money and, and prevents any kind of um, any kind of campaign for public financing for a new stadium, whether it be in the county or from the state levels. Uh, there could just be enough public sentiment, uh, a groundswell of of protest from people who say we don't want a new stadium, fix our schools instead. Um, but the thing about um, the the public sentiment regarding the Buffalo Bills and the new stadium is that I think it could be, um, I don't want to say an easy sell for Governor Cuomo or for Senator Schumer or whomever, um, but I, it's justified when you look at all of the other cities or, um, or states that have publicly financed stadiums. New York has really dodged that burden for generations, whereas my home state of Ohio, the Cleveland Browns, the Cleveland Indians, and the Cleveland Cavs all have new places to play. The Browns and Indians used to play in the same stadium. Now they're, now they're split up. Right. They each have their own spot. Bengals Cincinnati Reds and Cincinnati right. Bengals each have their own place to play. They used to, they used to play in uh, the same Riverfront Stadium. So that's a, that's a state that has seen five taxpayer-driven stadiums. New York has had zero. The New York Yankees and New York Mets uh, had some help with some municipal bonds, low-interest municipal bonds, but those were largely built by the teams themselves. Uh, the Jets and the Giants don't even play in the state. Uh, the Rangers uh, play the in the Brooklyn Garden Net, forever. That yeah. was, the Barclays Center was built uh, with municipal bond funding. So New York can look at this and say, we, it's time for us to you know, take care of some, an asset that this state has um, when we haven't really been forced to do so, and other states have. And it's the main reason that uh, with the story that I wrote regarding Los Angeles and its uh, bleak situation looking forward to the NFL is that um, California is a state where there's all sorts of stadiums and all sorts of teams. And if we, if we help out one team with a new stadium, then we have to help out all these teams with a new stadium. And that's why uh, there's zero appetite for any kind of public financing for uh, to, to build a stadium in Los Angeles because the Raiders want a stadium and the Chargers need a new stadium and the 49ers were begging for a new stadium and pretty much had to build it, at, uh, that one itself out in Santa Clara and ended up leaving the city. Right. So there's all sorts of, you know, all sorts of ways to look at this and say, you know, it's due, this state is due to be able to help out a sports team, especially one that is considered so... Uh, so much a part of the fabric of an entire region of the state. The sportscasters are here with Tim Graham. You can find him on Twitter at by Tim Graham. Before we let you go, I just want to ask you a couple of real quick Bills questions. And I know they deny this. They deny it up and down. But I'm not quite sure I'm, I believe them totally. Do you think that Whaley and Marone went into this draft thinking that there's going to be a new owner by the time in the next draft. They want, they might want their own guys. We really need to make it happen right now and bring this team to the playoffs right now. Do you think that played into their mind at all? I know they say it didn't, that uh, you know the personnel department's running as normal, blah, 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 but I don't know if I buy that. 
No, I don't think I do either, and I don't have any inside information, but it just doesn't make too much sense to me uh, that that there can, that there isn't more of a sense of urgency now than there was before Ralph Wilson died. And I think that that makes just uh, it makes too much sense. Uh, they know it. They know that they're on a short leash, that they have to be successful, that their draft picks have to hit, that they need to be good on the field, and probably more importantly than anything else, E.J. Manuel has to be good. Because if E.J. Manuel's not good, then the next owner comes in or the next president or the next general manager or whatever the trickle-down is in terms of the new uh, the next position to get filled, uh, and looks at it and says, you know, boy, you know, these people really hung their hat on EJ Manuel to the point that they thought that just putting a bunch of weapons around him was going to make him better. Now here we are in need of a quarterback, and we don't have a first round pick next year. Right. Uh, that would that would cause a lot of lost credibility for me if I were the new owner coming in. That hey, you put us in this spot. Uh, not only do I not know who you are, I don't particularly think you did all that great of a job. So it's time for you to go. And, uh, that, yeah, that, the Bills are in a, in a tough spot right now. Or at least the people who are in charge at One Bills Drive right now are in a very – this is going to be a very tense season for them. Now, it sounds like – On a number of levels. It sounds like your answer to the next question is going to come down to EJ, but let's just assume for a second that Sammy Watkins can be as good as Julio Jones. I pick him only because he's – the last receiver I can think of that a team mortgaged a similar amount on to move up in the draft to get. Let's just say Sammy Watkins can be about as good as Julio Jones. Do you think they made a good trade? I love the player. I don't like the trade. Uh, that's my my take on it. I think that he's going to be very good. It's also a bit of a head-scratcher for me, and this goes back to your last question, that if the Bills were in a win-now mentality which they've admitted that they are you know they've said the future is now they've been saying all types of things since the draft but then why do you let Jarris bird go and the stevie johnson trade really seems uh you know i know why they did it they did it they viewed it as addition by subtraction they didn't think he was right. pulling in the same direction as the rest of the team uh they wanted his attitude uh, off the off the team um, they wanted the distraction gone. But you take Sammy Watkins' season and give him, hell, give him 1,200 yards and eight touchdowns, you know, rookie of the year caliber season, and then average out the difference between what Stevie Johnson has produced and that. And it works out to be a very minimal, barely noticeable uh, change over the course of a season. I'm talking game to game. Now, of course, if you go back to last season and Stevie Johnson's one, you know, his off year where it was still 600 yards and however many touchdowns, four or whatever it was, uh, and average the difference there, yeah, it's it's a little bit bigger. But still, is that enough? Is that the difference? Is that the guy is is 20, 20 yards and half a touchdown a game or a tenth of a touchdown? I don't even know what it would be. Maybe two-tenths of a touchdown a game difference over the course of 16 games. Is that what's going to get the Bills from 6-10 and 10 to the playoffs? Probably not. So that's the thing where a lot, so many people are going to have to play better, not just the addition of Sammy Watkins uh, being a nice infusion of talent into the roster, but they're going to need a lot more production from a lot more people for uh, Sammy Watkins uh, or for, for the Bills to, 
to, to look any different than they did uh, last year. The only other thing we don't know about the Watkins versus Stevie Johnson is we don't know how God's going to react to Johnson in overtime. You know, we don't know yet <laughs> if right. if God is going to allow uh, Watkins to catch overtime touchdown passes or if he's going to choose to do him like that. You know, so we still need the, if, the jury's still out there. Well, you're right. Right. And if God is on Sammy Watkins' side, then right. that is a huge. That's trade. huge. Yeah, that's big. Um, yeah. If if, uh, if there are you know all satanic forces can be removed from the Bills with the, the Stevie Johnson trade, then that that is worth it. Then the, right. that's uh, then Bryce Brown. I mean, uh, you make that trade ten times out of ten. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I totally agree with the the bird point and, and going back to some things we mentioned earlier. I'm glad they made the decisions they did there. Uh he's gonna be a great uh fit with Rex Ryan and uh he's gonna be a great help to uh to uh to the Saints who uh do everything uh, someday uh, and it I, uh, we talk about this all the time, the Saints the one thing I love about Mickey Loomis and Sean Payton and the way they do things is they're just gonna worry about it when Breeze is gone. There's the salary cap, it's just all put aside to the day when Breeze retires and then they can be in salary cap hell because what's the difference? Breeze isn't going to be there anyway. I just love that so much, and they did it in the I think it's a, very, it's a very wise approach. It is. and You have your quarterback. You make sure you, you have all the things you need uh, to make a run at the Super Bowl as long as he's there. And it's the only time they've ever had him in franchise history. I mean, because – they just never had a guy even close, and you know, and the Bills, and to, to tie it in with the Bills, they they might be looking at it like they might not be thinking they have Drew Brees, but that they have that guy right now too. We have our franchise guy in place, so let's do. And maybe they think their window's shorter, so I don't know. A lot of arguments could be made in a lot of different directions with the way they went with the draft, but we got like way diverted in the beginning, and so now this is really, really a lot longer than I asked of you. So. I will let you go. But again, it's by Tim Graham on Twitter. You can read him all the time in the Buffalo News and laugh along with me as he um, makes fun of the snark on Twitter. But thank you so much for doing this. Anything you want to add before we let you go? No, I right. no, I appreciate you guys having me on. I'm glad that you did it. All right, yes. We're very glad that you did too. Thanks a lot. All righty. Take care. All right. All right, I want to thank our guests today. I want to thank Tass Mellis, Tim Graham, S.L. Price, and Bryn Jonathan Butler, all for being on the podcast today. Don't forget you can find this show, last week's show, and any show on our website, www.sports-casters.com. You can also find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. And you can email us to sportscasters at gmail.com. All right, uh, one last thing for today, and I'm actually going to uh, to get us started. Since WrestleMania, which was in March sometime, uh, Vince McMahon has lost $842 million. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> but uh, the WWE is expected to survive. And actually, I guess I am advising you to believe that. And if I were you, I would buy... WWE stock if you had the chance uh, Vince McMahon is the most brilliant wrestling promoter in the history of wrestling and it's proof because there's really no other promoters anymore right yeah as early as 35 years ago there was 
hundreds of them around the world promoting wrestling, and he squashed them all, including billionaires like Ted Turner, including companies who had billionaires like Ted Turner backing them. Right. Uh, he squashed them all. And a lot of the reason why their stock tumbled the 40% was because them poorly projecting a TV deal that was actually a really big increase in rights fees. So they just thought that it would go up even higher than it would. Yeah, so he didn't lose money he actually had in his pocket or anything like that. Like he's not it, it was money that they projected him to have. Supposedly he's-, he's lost close to three hundred and sixty million dollars in net worth in in a single day because the company's right. stock tumbled more than forty percent. Yeah, he'll be all right. But I j- just say don't give up on them yet. There's been some weird talk about, you know, all right, so uh, some guy from the Miami Herald is considered to be one of the biggest experts in the legitimate media about wrestling. wrestling, And he noticed uh, that the, he noted that the NBC Universal deal will allow the WWE to net 150 million each year. That's a 70% increase from the previous deal. So if they would have just projected a 70% increase, probably none of this would have happened. So you could buy low on a company who just got a television deal worth 70% more than their last one. And that almost never happens in the DVR era. Right, yeah. So yeah, I, I don't know. Buying stocks on the day of the crash, as they say, and do the evolution. <laughs> uh, you can buy WWE stock um, at 11.50 right now. Oh yeah, and uh, I guess that's pretty low. Uh, so I'd go for it. Uh, there's a guy that's popular in pop culture and science. Uh, I think he's a what's the word I'm looking for? Physicist, theoretical physicist, Neil deGrasse Tyson, and he did a thing about Bill Gates's worth and trying to put that in perspective. And you're saying that Vince was worth about a billion dollars. Bill Gates is worth about $50 billion, I guess. And Neil deGrasse Tyson said, if you're walking down the street on a sidewalk, and he was thinking about himself. He's like, I got a job. I got a house. He's like, if I see a penny, I'm not going to pick it up. A nickel, not going to pick it up. It's like, if I see a dime, he's like, I'm probably not going to pick it up. But he's like, if I see a quarter, he's like, a quarter, I could put that in a, in a parking meter. He's like, I could do laundry with a quarter. So he's like, I'm probably picking up a quarter. So he's like, if you extrapolate that out or like, do the same ratio to Bill Gates. That quarter on the ground for Bill Gates is about forty five thousand dollars. So for Bill Gates, like he might, he's, he's effectively saying if Bill Gates saw a dime, that'd be worth like around forty five thousand dollars to him, and he'd be like, mm, yeah, I don't got time to pick that forty five thousand dollars up. So for Vince, that's probably around five or around a thousand dollars, and that's still crazy to think about. I've always wondered this. There's about 300, 300 million people in America, right? Is it is that right? It seems like it'd be higher. Three hundred million? Maybe that's right. That's I, don't right. Know. I think that's like the standard number that people say. So how many millions are in a billion? Thousand. Thousand millions, yeah. Thousand millions? Yeah, because you could have nine hundred ninety nine million nine hundred ninety nine thousand. So Okay. So why don't we get all the billionaires together? And start dropping millions off to peeps. I know, right? You would think so. Can we cure some economic woes that way? That's I, that's uh, I think that's not necessarily people, but socialism. Like, socialism. Yeah, right. That's what that is. Well, let's forget people, but like areas. 
Sure. But I guess we do this. It's charity. Right. They're right. already doing that. They're that idea is already thought of. Bill so. Gates is giving away his right. entire net worth yeah, when he dies. So, yes, that's what he's doing. They've already thought of that idea. Charity. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, uh, my turn has already passed. All right, so. so one last thing for me today, uh, short and sweet, uh, a two-lane safety. Devin Walker, who maybe you haven't heard of or maybe you know of him because of his horrific injury, he is paralyzed from neck, the neck down after colliding with a teammate, of all things. You see those ugly hits and the DBs take on each other trying to make tackles. In a game in September 2012, his senior season, uh, the Saints have signed him. Obviously, not to play or anything, but just kind of as a cool gesture. And I don't have much to say about that. I mean, that's awesome. But the NFL is really easy to pick on. There's a lot of criminals that play in it. Uh, we just, it seems like more often than not, particularly in the offseason, when we're talking about news regarding the NFL, it's almost overwhelmingly negative. But I will say the NFL does this type of stuff all the time, and it's really cool. Between this, the stuff they do with the United Way, the stuff they do with the Make-A-Wish kids that you can always find, uh, YouTube clips. Uh, I mean, the NFL does a lot of really, really, really cool things, and this is just another example. So we're used to beating the NFL up during the offseason, so I wanted to give them uh, some props when they do something cool. Yeah, I love seeing that stuff. That's cool. Um, my one more thing, or last thing here, is uh, recently went to – a concert with a bunch of the guys back at school. Went to uh, Mohegan Sun, which is a nice casino, hotel, whatever in Connecticut. Um, went to see the Killers live, which has always been, you know, one of uh, the top three or so bands I wanted to see live. I've seen Pearl Jam. Got to finally see Bruce uh, at the Garden, which was awesome. And then uh, the Killers are always next. And I got to see them, and I just want to tell everyone out there if you have a chance to go see the killers you have to go see them uh brand flowers their lead guy is uh he's the real deal so if they're around go see the killers